Toward the end of your book, What You Don't Learn in Film School, Shane, you have this story. It's a fascinating story where you said you saved a Hollywood studio, what, 50 million? It was about, yeah, and it was it was for a, a very large trilogy uh, that they were producing at the time. And, and what had happened is, is they, they had committed to making three blockbuster movies, you know, tentpoles over the course of, I think, five or six years. And they had tremendous success with the first one. It was, it was everything that they make these kind of movies for and more. And uh, the second one had come out and not done very well. And uh, I got a phone call one day from somebody that I had worked with when I was doing studio work. And I guess he had talked to one of the heads of production at this other studio and said, you know, you need to kind of flip the script on your mindset. You really need to get an indie rat to look at your budget, your schedule, in your script and, and let somebody go in with the mindset that understands production at this level, but thinks, thinks you know, how do you make something for a dollar really for a dime? And I got a phone call out of the blue one day and it was the head of production for a studio and they, they had me come in. They wouldn't talk much about it on the phone. It was very hush-hush and covert. Everything was in code. And I walked into the boardroom and there was all these people sitting around a horseshoe table with, you know, their Fiji bottles of water and their highlighter pens or Sharpies in their pads of paper and they had a seat for me and I couldn't figure out why I was there and you know one of the the head head people came in he was wearing a suit I remember that and um, told me the situation and what they were dealing with and how they had made really big commitments going into the third that the second film's lack of success did not justify they but they were contractually obligated to certain escalations in people's pay they were shooting in different countries all over the world. Um, so they asked if I would um, take a look at the, they wanted me to look at the first two films, then they wanted me to break down the third one, just from my perspective. And it was it was heavy CGI, you know, it was a big tentpole studio movie, it's not what I do. Um, but they had me go through everything and we spent a few days, I had to do everything there. I wasn't allowed to leave with any materials. My cell phone had to be far. There was a person in the room with me at all times and just broke it down and it just common sense, common sense, common sense. And then, you know, I'd, I'd see a way to save, you know, a lot of money and they would tell me, no, you can't do that because we have this contract in place or there are these agreements with unions or, you know, we have to pay these actors these scales. But it was interesting looking at a budget for a film that was, you know, over $200 million. I mean, you know, when you're making films that are comfortably, you know, in that million dollar range and, you know, you, you find a place for every dime and you make sure it stretches and you start looking at where money is going at dollars at, at that level, it's mind blowing. You know, the money that's spent, wasted, uh, that'll never see the screen, you know, perk packages, daily per diems and bonuses and private jets back and forth hotels that cost a fortune that these these actors will be in to just sleep a couple hours, you know, a few hours a night. Um, it, it's mind-blowing. And um, so I, I felt very fortunate to be a part of that process. It, it reminded me of the difference between being an independent filmmaker and, and really being in, in, embedded with the studio system. And this was at a time when, when the studios were just spending so much money. And there, there, I don't think there was a real checks and balances on where these, these dollars were going. It was just about give the actors what they need, give the filmmakers what they need. You know, above the line producers, I think there were 17 of them, 18 of them. That's not including the, the talent. 
um, you know, cinematographers and high-end crew. I mean, there were some really big crew people on this too. I mean, this was a big film. And I, I think, you know, looking back that I, I don't think anything's changed with them. You know, it's, it's no surprise that a studio will gladly spend $200 million to make 20 million. I mean, that's obviously not the goal, but that's kind of the business model for a lot of the studios. You know, a lot of people say, well, 80% of studio films fail. Um, that's true, but what we deem a failure just because we look at the domestic box office doesn't mean globally it was a failure. There's a lot of ways that they can still make money on ancillaries and different outlets for their project or you know, plushies and toys and all the stuff that come with it. But um, it was an interesting experience and it, it really made me appreciate what we do as independent filmmakers and, and why I really, I think it was an experience like that because I just come off of making Gridiron Gang shortly before and was lining up to do some more studio and network projects. And I remember walking away from that and just saying, you know, sure, who wouldn't want a paycheck like some of these people were getting? Of course, we, who wouldn't? But when it comes down to getting movies made and loving what you do and who you do it with and passion for, maybe it's your art, passion for working with the people that you care about or just wanting to kick a movie out every year or two, um, it really, it really kind of helped push me into the direction of just saying, you know what, that, that isn't what I want to pursue. I want to be able to find people that want to go get their hands dirty, stretch a buck, shoot where we're not supposed to shoot, shoot with cameras that aren't the newest or the coolest, and go make fun movies that you know people may or may not like. It was, it was kind of a, a life-changing experience for me. I'm, I'm glad we saved the studio a lot of money. I mean, it was, I can remember it was 38 or 52. I haven't read that part of the book in a while. But there was, we saved them a lot of money. I mean, in just common sense money. Where was most of the money being spent that you ended up cutting? Um, most of the money was, um, believe it or not, um, studios spend an, an outrageous amount of money in post-production on films like that. And they have contracts, they have ways that they're going to put money into something from one account into another. You know, that, that happens when, you know, they'll have three edit bays working on one film. That's a, a walk and talk drama. You know, they can have an apprentice editor setting things up for the assistant editor the assistant editor setting up things for the other editor and the amount of money they're charging for these these kit fees and these bungalow rentals and you know there are there are union jobs so those pay scales are what they are unless you're getting an academy award winner or a real hot editor but what i notice is just i i, I know a lot of editors i mean editing's my back my background uh cgi i've got a lot of people in my life that do that and when you start budgeting things and you start getting teams of 30, 40, 50 people to do something that you say, you know, you can cut this down. You don't have to go this route. You could go to a different country. You don't have a contract with this country to do post. You can talk to these guys here. They would love your business and probably cut this. Most of these things were done in post and CGI and, and just kind of reworking perks. I mean, it was even, you know, studios have their private jets. They, they perk out, you know, and have deals with hotels all over the world. But there's only so many jets to go around. So it was. It even got to the point where we were literally making deals with other private charter services and other people that we knew in the private airline business that were able to help save a lot of money. Because you know, a flight from LA to New York, people don't realize a private plane flight could cost over 20 grand. It's not a cheap flight. So imagine flying people from LA to other parts of the world and trying to just connect dots with transportation coordinators that weren't gonna 
bruise any egos, but just kind of inform some of the executives on where they could go. And um, that's what we did. Now, how much money they ended up using on that savings or, or you know, how much, whatever the dollar amount was that we saved, I don't know what they ended up spending. I just know on paper, following all their guidelines and rules and their, you know, what they asked, uh, you know, us to adhere to in putting together a new budget. It was, it was pretty substantial, you know. For all I know, they spent more than that, uh, than the original budget. They probably did, but, you know, it, it checked, everything checked out. It was doable. And during this meeting, were there certain topics that made them uncomfortable when you said, let's cut this and we'll do this and we'll move this over here, and you could see, ooh, that's, that's probably not gonna work for them? Um, there was a lot of looking around. You know, what I found in, 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 in a system like that is it, there's a pecking order, there is a hierarchy, and, and as there is in most business, and a lot of people, um, when you'd suggest something, you, you wouldn't get one person saying yes or no, you get a lot of people looking to one or two different people and then looking to another person, and it, it just ends up going to the head of the table anyway. You know, um, so it's, it's rare people are gonna go out on a limb and say, that's, that's what we need to do. It, it kind of, you know, the idea's always played pinball, or would come back after three or four discussions to a no, or a hey, that's good, can we try this over there? And, and they were very forward thinking. Once they started seeing, it wasn't like I reinvented the wheel for them, it was just getting them to just kind of throttle back a little bit on the hemorrhaging of money on everything, giving everybody everything. Okay, you have made these commitments to these actors. I get that, but they don't need to know what you're spending on these things. These gift perks, these you know hotel rooms or these other perks that go on that these actors are given at films at that level. There's different ways to, to still give them what you're contractually obligated to give them and save. And we were getting to the point where we're literally saving two, $300 on every gift basket. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff we were literally getting down to. We were doing everything we could to save them money. Gift basket, so that is a typical thing on certain sets? Oh, you? sure. Sure, the studios treat their actors really well. And I, I think even independent filmmakers, you know, should if they don't, when you get an actor that shows up on your film that's, you know, a special get, I think, I think welcoming them with something, even if it's a, a fruit basket or a, a bottle of nail polish or something is good. Um, but studios, you know, they they have some really, you know, and there's a lot of sponsorship that comes with that too. It's kind of like the Oscars. But there is costs. There are, you know, all sorts of things that go into these things that costs money, everything costs money. And you know, when you start going in with the mindset of, okay, instead of just saying you're gonna spend $5,000 on every gift basket, and it's gonna end up costing you 2,500 to 3,500 after you get the free, how do you make them feel equally special for five or $600? And it's, it's doable. It's just about taking the time to break it down and not just throwing the money at the problem. Sure, and then you said the hotel room where they may just stay over. Well, yeah, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot we could do with hotel rooms because of contracts, you know, various studios and production entities, you know, especially when studios are going into other parts of the world, there are a lot of setups already. So they're not gonna, you're not gonna go in and ruffle too many feathers with that, but it's just the cost and it's reminding them that you may not think $5,000 for a gift basket is a lot of money for an actor, but you're also spending this much a night on a hotel room. And in reality, they're gonna spend 12, 12 hours a day on a set. Then they're gonna be doing this, this, this press junket, maybe this. And at the end of the day, this is, with the exception of their days off, this is where they're gonna hang their head at night. And how, how can some of these things be worked out? And, and I think most of those things were kind of finagled more for not the top tier level of actor. 
but it was about finding other similar accommodations that were substantially lower. I mean, it's it's not rocket surgery. I mean, I've got I've got a nephew who's getting married at Pebble Beach coming up, and they threw us all the available hotels. And I mean, I think the rooms start at twelve hundred, fourteen hundred dollars a night. And you know, there's two things I don't pay for myself is a nice fancy hotel room and a first class airfare. You know, I'm just sitting on a plane going from A to B. I'll do a coach. I have no problem with that. Um, I made three phone calls, and I I I'm basically five minutes from the wedding, spending two hundred and nine dollars a night for the wedding. I, that's just the mentality that I have. You know, I, I just think there's money that is better served somewhere else, and and so I that's the mentality I kind of took with them and everything. And um, you know, they were receptive to a lot of the ideas. Again, did they end up doing it? I know I wasn't leaving until I was able to show them a savings, so they at least accepted what I presented at the end of the day, but I, I couldn't tell you what they ended up spending. You never know. But I know that they were they were concerned going in and needed needed some cuts. So I, I don't think they just brought me in to have me warm a seat for three days. <laughs> well, I don't want to blow my street cred here, but what is an indie rat? I'm an indie rat. It's people that just, you know, they, they don't wait for the machine. They figure out a way. You know, it's I, I always, you know, I talk about in the book is, you know, give me an actor, a camera, and, and a place to do it, and let's go make a movie. It's it's not waiting for a machine to decide, you know, when all the stars align. You know, I had, when we did Gridiron Gang, um, we made that deal, I believe, in 1993. It was the most sought after property in Hollywood. Everybody had bid on it but Paramount. And, you know, hundreds of producers, directors, and actors all wanted to be a part of it. And then it gets to the studio and it took two years to finally go into turnaround. It never got made. And, you know, fast forward to 2006, you know, <laughs> and I just, I know not every film goes through that, but it's not uncommon. And I had spent some time at a network after doing Gridiron. I, I was brought on uh, to, to develop in-house projects for a major network uh, with a writing partner of mine at the time. And we spent, I think 13 months there talking about a lot of great projects that never got made. And these were passion projects that the network wanted to do. These weren't our ideas. It was, we were brought in to do the passion projects that the high ups wanted to see get made. And the meetings and the development discussions, and I'll never forget it, you know, um, the, the, the VP of the, the network brought me into his office one day after our 100th you know, development meeting on one show. And it was Friday and he said, you like scotch? I said, I like scotch. And he poured us a scotch, we put our feet up on his coffee table and shot the breeze for a few minutes and he said, you're a filmmaker, man. You don't belong here. He said, I can see your frustration. He said, I, he said, you'll always have an open door with me, but I think you need to just go out and make movies. He goes, this isn't how you work. I said, yeah, I just don't understand it. I said, we've been here 13 months. We've gone from this project for four months to, oh, that's not cool anymore. Let's jump on this one. Oh, that's, that's not going to fit in today's climate. And then we go to something else. And I said, here, we're on round three in 13 months and we, we haven't done anything. I said, you know, my idea is write something that you're excited about get some friends together and go shoot it. And that's that's what I do, that's what I believe in. And um, I think at that point, I had just gotten to, in my life was where it was about just, just doing what we wanted to do. And it doesn't agree with everybody and not everybody likes what I do. And that's not why I don't do it for people to like it. I do it because I, I need to do it to, to just to feel alive. That's, you know, what I need to do. And um, it's it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I wouldn't trade those days in doing the studio film 
or you know working with the networks the way I did it it taught me so much to be able to do what I do today because I can see it from both sides I can see it from a creative person who doesn't have a lot of budget to work with but I also know the end game and when this thing is done where it has to go how it how it has to be exploited around the world and and making sure we check the boxes that you know all 54 territories and 172 countries that are out there that buy there's something in it for everybody how can the quote-unquote indie rats and the quote-unquote suits harmoniously work together because each needs each other each needs each other that's a that is a great question um I wish I had all the answers and I I'd like to think I play well with others I I some of the greatest relationships I've had in this town have been with the suits um and I what people we all have to remember is this is a business at the end of the day but it's like let's take something like the car business which we talked about before um, you have the people that actually design the cars that you know have jobs designing and engineering then you have the people that actually have to be the executives behind the decision to greenlight a car being made and then you have the car dealerships that are going to acquire the cars and then you have the salesmen who have to sell them and then you got the mechanics who have to work on them everybody needs each other it's kind of like on a film set we have a rule where I don't care if you're the star of the show if you're a PA you're all equal to this machine running in, in, in harmony and we all need to show respect for one another and I think I think there's always been a little bit of a clash between the suits and the, the filmmaker um, but I think if if people can get on the same page and I think I think if the, the executives would trust the artists that they're giving their money to or distributing I think if you fall in love with an idea you fall in love with a script or a filmmaker's vision from a previous film you need to decide I either trust this person to run with it or I don't and I think when you get too many cooks in the kitchen um, I think it stifles the creativity I, I, I know I've been involved with some pretty pretty big projects where the suits and the artists couldn't ever get along it, it got very very intense it got it got explosive at times even on sets where a studio exec will show up not happy with a director for a style they're shooting in or unhappy because a DP is moving the camera too much and the, the the tempers that flare on set in front of everybody I mean you know we, we are in a industry of children <laughs> whether we like it or not um, and I just I just don't think it needs to be that way and I think communication is key it's not just okay we believe in you you're getting paid go shoot this movie and then we look at dailies and we tell you what we like and don't like and, and when you start doing that to an artist it really the, the hair on the back of their neck goes up I've seen it time and time again and I just think there's I think there's probably some basic fundamentals I find a lot of suits spend a lot of time psychoanalyzing things they take a lot of classes and body language how to read somebody's temperament across the desk or across the room and I, I don't think they've been taught or maybe there isn't a class maybe when you make this the next book is, is basically how to understand the inner workings of an artist and, and what those buttons are in their life that can make them because once that trust has been broken or once that that communication has been derailed I, I it's very I don't think it's something that can come back did it do the steeple you know with the hands I mean, a lot of this a lot of talking like this <laughs> thinking, am I doing that right no, now no <laughs> no I'm just I'm just thinking of, of like you know the any any good uh movie with an executive or something you'll have the steeple and they'll be thinking watch Phil watch Phil Joanna's film Entropy I think it's a brilliant film Phil Phil's a friend uh, he directed Gridiron Gang um you know Phil it's no secret Phil punched out a studio executive in front of 300 people on a set of Heaven's Prisoner and um, I think it was Heaven's Prisoner he did um, it was the Alec Baldwin film 
and you watch what builds to that point. And a lot of people don't believe that actually happened. I can assure you it did. Um, and it, it happens more often than you realize. It, it may not go to blows as much anymore. I, I think people are ready for that now, or they, they hide behind texts and emails is, is really what people are able to do. It's, That's I think also a, a lot of the face-to-face -face has been taken out of our business. Everything's text messaging and emails. And you know, I think a lot of people do that out of trying to get it done quick, fear. I think fear is a big, big component of that. Is people don't like confrontation. And I think, you know, if executives would just understand that when you trust an artist's vision and you greenlight him or her to, to fulfill that promise, that you you really need to just trust. You, you know, um, Sidney Lamet in his book um, said something brilliant about hiring actors. And he said, when you're a director and you make a decision on an actor, good or bad, you have to live with that decision. And you have to do everything you can to see that that journey is as smooth a sailing as possible. I can't remember the words he used, but there were times in his career where he said that he really thought he had the right actor for a role and realized on day one in rehearsal that this was the biggest mistake of his life. And you would never know it as an audience member. You would never know it as maybe the actor who he hired, but it's it's about understanding the being that you're working with. And, and artists are fragile. We're very sensitive to everything. We take everything personally. You know, if somebody doesn't like a cut or somebody doesn't like, you know, the theme of something or the style, it's 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 a personal attack. It's never separated. And it, it takes a strong artist to be able to do that. And I think it takes a stronger executive to be able to really find a way to communicate with people on how to get the adjustments a studio or network might need to get what they need. And I, I've really seen it done in a productive way. That's just me. Sure, and I, and I agree with what you're saying about being sensitive, but I think also too, some of the quote unquote suits, and I wish I could find a better word for them, but um, they're also sensitive in that they don't like being told no, oh. and they don't like people usurping their authority or, or challenging them, especially if they believe in this pecking order. And there's a lot of fear. I think there's fear from both, you know, what, Hollywood fear is and love. Okay, so, so fear, fear from both sides. And so just thinking about what are ways that, you know, there, there could, we could prevent a blow up if, if one is mirrored in a pecking order mindset and, well, I can't believe you would tell me what to do. You don't you know who I am? And then there's this artist, don't you know what I've done? And I can't believe you would doubt me. And then the clash that happens. Yeah, and it's, it's ego driven at the end of the day. I mean, it's fear driven and it's ego driven because, you know, in, in our business, it's, it's literally, you know, your career could be made or broken in, in one project. You're either the next Damien Chazelle or you know, you make a mistake and you don't have a hit, you're done. I mean, you know, look what happened to uh, George Cosmatos. You know, he came off of, God rest him, he was a great filmmaker. I mean, look at what Tombstone, he did Tombstone and he was, you know, the next greatest thing. And, and I worked with him on Shadow Conspiracy with Charlie Sheen, which was, I think, the last film he ever did. And I can assure you that's not what he wanted to go six feet under with his name on. And I don't think he would have worked much after that film. No disrespect, but not saying I could do anything better. I'm just saying when you look at how fast you can turn around, you know, um, you know, some great filmmakers and actors in this industry that have hits that people just, they're just bowled over with and they do a couple more films and what happens to them? And it's unfair. You know, I, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time is Mike Vegas. I mean, I admire him because here's a guy who writes, directs, produces, edits, composes, caters, you know, probably cleans the latrine. 
I mean, that guy is a filmmaker's filmmaker. And obviously when he had Leaving Las Vegas with, um, you know, Nicolas Cage and um, Elizabeth Shue and all the Oscar accolades that came with it, how do you deny somebody like that? You know, this guy's gonna do it again. You know, Salman King went through the same thing. You know, he had a string of hits and then had some that, that weren't as successful. And, you know, and um, it's, it's, you know, I guess it's like that in sports. It's like that in, in a lot of businesses. I mean, I don't know. It seems like people can, in, in the suit side, it seems like people can run companies into the ground over and over again and still end up running other companies. But um, we see that a lot. But I, I, think, I think the artists and the executives, I think, need to find a way to, to spend more time understanding one another and not just thinking they understand one another. You know, we forget that, you know, I always go back to the record industry and, and you know, when, when music was, you know, a business back in the earlier days of A&R representatives working for labels and seeking bands and clubs that nobody heard of and watching that, that machine grow into becoming something that was worthy of signing to a major label. Um, I knew a lot of A&R guys back in the 80s and 90s because of my music background. And I used to say to them, you know, how do you, how do you not get fired? And they said, well, we say no. You don't sign a band, you don't get fired. And studios have to crank out so many films a year. Production companies have to fulfill the machine, especially now because it's a bottomless pit, right? You know, if you know how many productions are getting made at Netflix at any given time. It's 33, I think, right now. Um, so there's a machine that needs to be filled. But I think they understand each other from a very generic standpoint. I, I still don't think they've found a way to really meld into you know, harmonious relationship. It's very rare. It's very rare. About a year and a half ago, Shane, you wrote a book entitled What You Don't Learn in Film School. So if we proposed a sequel to this book, maybe what they don't teach you after 20 years in the film industry, what would be the main crux of that book? Oof, that's a great question. Um, wow. I think, you know, as I talk about in the book, uh, every day I learn something new. Every day. And I, I've been producing for over 30 years. And I, you know, been in this industry, 49 of them. And every day I learn something new. And I, I think what's most important is, is whether you're on the executive side or you're on the artistic side, I think you have to be open to change. You have to be open to uh, learning from your mistakes and owning them. I think I don't think enough people own their mistakes. And I think we grow from our mistakes instead of burying them and having a fall guy or a, a scapegoat. I think the biggest thing that I see is people not learning. Um, I think I think it goes back to putting your pride aside. You know, I've I've come from a very humble educational documentary film beginning and then was very fortunate to to run a company that did a lot of studio films and then you know ultimately doing gridiron gang and working with networks and i have i have come back to being an indie guy and and it's by choice i mean i don't know maybe nobody wants me in hollywood proper but i didn't give them the chance to say they didn't i just decided to go back to what i love but what i see in a lot of the people that i that i come in contact with or i i work with that are trying to find their way is I think they're more concerned about public perception about what they do and how they come off than actually doing the work. Um, I find more people spend most of their time trying to gloat about what they're doing on social media. And, and hey, I get it. It drives drives projects for some people. A lot of people are more interested in having, you know, fake it till you make it or perception is everything. I 
I get that. I don't, I don't endorse it, but I understand it. And I think what, what I find interesting is, is there's some of these filmmakers that I, that I personally know will absorb a lot of information, whether it's from me or other people that you've had on Film Courage or other filmmakers that they know that have been through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they love taking the meetings, but they don't apply it. And I'm just as guilty of it. I'm, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, I have all the answers because I clearly don't. Um, but I, one thing I don't do is, I'm, you know, I learned a saying when I was in high school is that even a dumb dog doesn't look a hot stove twice. I, I try not to do that in what I do. I try to learn and make the next better, you know, even if it's just from a production standpoint. Last time we were together, I was getting ready to do a film in the heat of COVID. You know, we shot that in November, December, October, November, and December of last year in 2020 when other projects were getting shut down. Um, we, we took over 400 COVID tests. We didn't have one positive. We, we had so much fun. We had, I always work with a small crew anyway. They gave us, you know, with the mandates from the union, we, we couldn't have more than 20 people on a set, including cast and, and crew. It was the most fun I ever had making a movie in my life. And moving forward, I've learned to take that experience and how I can make the next project better for, for everybody. And it wasn't just about having a smaller crew or being stuck doing three tests a week for COVID. It was, it was about, I think there was a lot of it was people were so happy to be back out working and interacting with each other. But it reminded me again of the respect that we need to have for one another, how blessed we are to be in this industry, whether you're making a $500 film or a $50 million film, we are equally as blessed where we get to do something we love and just trying to remind ourselves it's only a movie. Um, I learned something from Martin Sheen hundred years ago. We were doing a film together and it shot over, over the holidays and God, God bless him. He, he, for some reason, he didn't go back for one of the holidays when everybody else broke. So it was, it was Adam Kane, Martin Sheen, myself, and, and I think it was Susan McGuire, our AD. And the four of us went out to a holiday dinner in Arizona. We were making a film and he told the story of his heart attack on Apocalypse Now. You know, it's everybody's heard different versions of it. I heard it directly from him and I'm, not going to relay the story. I wouldn't want to waste everybody's time on that. You can research it. But the one thing Mr. Sheen said as he was being wheeled into the hospital for his surgery after having his heart attack was his wife, Jan, leaned over and looked at him and said, it's only a fucking movie, Martin. And here at that time, they didn't know it was going to be one of the most iconic films in Hollywood history. But when, when he said that, I never forgot it because what we do is special to us and hopefully the people that our work touches and the people that see it. But in the grand scheme of life, it's only a movie. And I try to remember that. I try to remember that when we go on set every day, you know, we're blessed to be there. Have a smile. You're not sitting in a cubicle trying to raise money to make a movie. You're out making a movie. Um, and I, I, and again, it's, it's just, I think the next book, going back to your question of an hour and a half ago, Karen, I think is it's bringing a, a sense of, of joy and, and feeling blessed regardless of what it is you're doing. We all want to do bigger, better things at a bigger scale and get paid more for it. But it's not about that. Be in the moment, love the moment and realize that, you know, people only go, go to the moon once usually. I don't think there's many people that have been to the moon twice. And, and I look at every opportunity to shoot a film as going to the moon. And just enjoy the moment. Build those relationships. Um, treat people that you, the way you want to be treated because the day's going to come where that PA on your set is going to be the guy running HBO or, you know, uh, 
three arts entertainment or something. And, and you know, it's, it, it's mind blowing how going back to what we talked about with suits and artists, it's the way people treat each other, especially in this business. It's not always favorable. And uh, I know I'm not perfect and I've, I've, I've raised my voice and been upset with people. And I, I'd like to think I go back and make it right. But I think what I'd like to see people do is, is build more relationships and, and build more of a family within their core. Uh, not just look to get through Tuesday, get the film done on time, on budget, and move on. I think you look at some of the most successful filmmakers that that have come through, and especially in the old days, and there was a there was a family. You know, when Hitchcock made his films, people all stepped up and helped each other. There wasn't a divide. You know, when when he was making Psycho and he was sick and was out for a week or two, you know, the AD directed the film. His wife stepped in and did some directing. I mean, you know, that's that's a family atmosphere, and I I, I wish there would be more of that in our industry. And people weren't just interested in me, me, me. I think it's it's about us, stronger together. Do you think too? Uh, so if we if we took the first book, film school, and, and everyone's about get, going out there making their mark. And when you're younger, it's definitely more about competition and wanting to prove yourself. And then maybe life has different knocks and different things happen, and it becomes more about meaning. And so maybe that's also something that's you know, after 30 years, it's more about what does this project mean to me and, and am I doing what I want to be doing? I think that's a big part of it. Um, I think that if we can grow from everything we do, you know, I think that's the key is growth and, and trying to build something special so the next one is better and bigger. It doesn't mean it's going to be financially bigger or financially better, but the experience. And I think when you have an atmosphere on a set, that people feel a part of, regardless if they're the guys coming in once a week to empty the toilets or the, the, the star of the show. If people feel a part of something, I think it really shows on screen. You know, we talk about that a lot in the book is temperament, respect on a set, how it ultimately is going to affect your actors. You know, they are such sensitive beings. Their, their antennas are way out. They're picking up on every nuance of, of mood. The director and DP are pissed off at each other. An AD is upset or snippy. They, they, they pick up on that. And you know, I just, I, I think what I was trying to say earlier is that I think, I think everybody is truly in our industry, it's every man for themselves, but I think it, it shows too much. I think people need to remember that it, it takes a village. It takes, it takes a unit. You know, we don't, we don't storm countries or go into war thinking about one or two people. We go in as a unit, you know, and um, I, I just would like to see more of that in our industry. What's your advice to people on getting representation, whether it's for film, screenwriting, acting? Well, I think that um, having representation and how it comes to you and the, the need for it is they're separate. You have to keep them separate. I think if you're an actor, you need it. Um, it's an, an agent's job is to go through the breakdowns and submit you for roles to get you taped auditions or in the room. I mean, an actor can't act without people knowing they exist. I think that uh, cinematographers, that's very important too. I think uh, agents can be very beneficial to a cinematographer's career. Um, by and large, agents sit around and wait for the phone to ring. I mean, let's call it like it is. The days of agents reading scripts, taking 20 or 30 home a, a weekend and discovering new property and calling an actor and saying, I just read something you've got to read. Let's call the producers and tell them you want to do this. You know, a lot of agents wait for the phone to ring. And I think that when 
writers, directors, and filmmakers ask about getting representation, I, I'm a firm believer that you're either chasing it or it's chasing you. And I talk about this a lot in the book. I have a big chunk of it about representation and being a filmmaker. And you know, I'm a firm believer that if, if you're not making noise with your work and you gotta call agents and people to represent you, then your work is not gonna be something that they're gonna have a, a real easy time getting behind and selling. Um, and I know that's very harsh to say, look, I've been through 100 agents and managers and um, I've never gotten a job from one, not one. And I've been with some big agencies and big managers and maybe it's my fault, maybe I'm just horrible and unsellable. But um, I get asked a lot from, from young writers who may have had a short film made or producers who are trying to you know, sell, sell what they're doing to a bigger scale. And you know, things today, especially with the changes in our industry in the last few years, um, agencies that are respectable and real, they, they're kind of signing people by committee now. It's not hip-pocketing, you know, the days of an agent taking somebody kind of off the grid in their back pocket and trying to do something with that is, is really frowned upon and is something that is really not done as much anymore, if at all. So when you go in with a, with a resume and a, a body of work that you might have, uh, and try to get representation, you, you have to, you know, they're gonna check with everybody from the janitor to the parking attendant to make sure if they should sign you or not. It's, it's not just somebody falling in love with you and unless it's somebody who runs a boutique on their own that they are the judge, jury, and executioner. But I have found that when, when you seek out representation and you have to kind of do a tap dance to get them to want to get behind your work and your abilities, um, I always say, you know, let's see where that re that relationship is in six months. Um, they they usually don't bear much fruit, and and that's, you know, uh, it's unfortunate. It's hard to get representation as a writer, as a producer, and as a director in this town. That said, it is not hard to create original content that, if it's good enough, can get the attention of a respectable agent or manager. Um, you know, again, we we have endless resources for so cheap. As filmmakers, even even student filmmakers, you know, you can get a DSLR. You can get actors, and again, don't hire your cousin and your mother to be in them. Go to acting schools and call the people that run these acting schools and say, "I'm making a short. I'm doing a spec commercial. Give me some good talent." There are people out there that actually know how to act that you can get and put stuff together. If if you know if your hurdle is well, I, I can't get anything done because I, I can't get any money or I can't get anything done because nobody's behind me, then you have to create the content. And if you don't have the content created, how are people gonna know if you're worthy of being represented or not? I'm not trying to discourage anybody from trying to get representation, and I'm sure there are those wonderful relationships where the artist has banged down the door enough times and the agent finally said, okay, I'll rep you, and it's, it's gone well. There are those exceptions, but by and large, the majority of the time, you know, first-time writers, and I say first-time writers, and I finished a screenplay or I have a book on Amazon, um, where's my agent? It doesn't work that way. And if it does, you know, let's see how that went after six months. I, I just don't think that when you have to try to convince somebody to represent you, um, that, that that's, that's a passion. I think when, when a true agent or manager gets behind somebody, I think they have to be passionate about them. Uh, I think they have to be, they're, they're working for the artist and they have, they only get paid on commission. And who are they gonna spend their days banging down the doors for? You know, and if, if you're an actor, I really believe you need an agent. Um, but talking about the filmmaker side, 
it's tough to get representation. And and I I often tell filmmakers don't don't spin your wheels and burn your calories trying to get an agent. Just the amount of time you're trying to burn the phones to find an agent, you should be shooting something that's going to make an agent say, "Holy shit, I saw this on YouTube. I saw this on, you know, Vimeo. I saw this at a film festival." Or at least if you are going to bang on those doors, you should have three or four short films or something. You know, I know a very successful commercial director who's who's been at the top of the game for many years. And I asked him once, I said, how did you get in the game? You know, you didn't come from film school. You didn't have parents that could, you know, he said, hey, man, I got a camera. I got I, I got friends who could act. I got guys who can hold sound. And I, I knew how to direct. I knew how to cut. And I went out and I started doing spec commercials. Like he did Doritos, Coca-Cola, Pepsi. He would just grab product and do these incredible, you know how like Doritos would have these contests where, you know, create your own create your own campaign and maybe we'll use it, you know? He would just do that for everything. He would do cars, like if his, if his mom got a new BMW, mom, let me, let me make a car commercial for BMW. And this guy had like 20 or 30 commercials and they all looked like really big commercials. And he was able to go in and say, this is what I can do. This is who you're representing. Keep in mind, when you go to an agent, they need content to sell you because they're gonna make phone calls or emails on your behalf and the decision makers are gonna say, great, let me see their work. And if you don't have work, the agent's job, you're, you're kinda you're, you're kind of kneecapping the agent going in because they're gonna to come to you and say, you gotta get me content. And it's it can't be looked at as a chicken or egg type thing. That's an excuse. The filmmaker, the artist has to get out there and, and create the content. Now, if you're a writer, I'm a firm believer that you may, you may excel or be passionate about writing one thing. I think it's important if you're unknown to really stretch and try to try to get three or four spec scripts done in different genres because there are companies that are just making thrillers that may read your script that an agent can take to somebody like Mar Vista and, and say, hey, you're doing a bunch of stuff for Lifetime. Look at this. If, if the agent can get it in the room, it'll get a look. But there's also companies that only do horror. There's companies like Hallmark that only do romantic comedies or whatever those things are called. And if, if you're a writer that's looking to get representation, the agent is going to want and need as much ammunition as possible. You have to make their job easy. And if you give them three or four different, you know, a palette of different things, they're going to be able to circulate three or four different scripts and maybe 15 or 20 different companies. Think about what the odds have just come of you not only getting somebody in your corner to represent you, but getting seen and getting a reputation. A wonderful uh, woman I met um, a year and a half ago at a webinar, um, right when COVID started. Brilliant writer. She writes these beautiful romantic little you know films that are just hallmark, and 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 she got she got a script read and she got a green light and she got the film produced and now she is a working writer, and she we talked about it and she was like, oh my god, I got genres in everything. This woman was pushing a genre. But when it came time to getting looked at and getting representation, she had a, a whole plethora of stuff to give to them and say, look, I can write anything. And that's what she's doing now. And, and you have to, you know, I think too many of us sit around and wait for the phone to ring or the door to get knocked on or somebody to know somebody. You have to be so proactive on, on creating content to get people excited about what you do. I go back to, we talk about films like Napoleon Dynamite started as a short, Saw was a short. Sling Blade was a short. 
you know, um, there's, there's so many of those films, even Whiplash was a short. They obviously did something right to get the attention and get these things made into major motion pictures. That hasn't changed. You know, people forget that those four great films started from humble, humble beginnings. I mean, Napoleon Dynamite, the short was in black and white for crying out loud. I mean, it's horrible, but it was great. But it was, it was so bad, it was good, right? But that's how we have to think as filmmakers. You know, James Wan did it brilliantly with his short for Saw. I mean, I encourage everybody, go on YouTube, find these films, they're all there. They're all there. You can find these shorts and you will see where Billy Bob Thornton got Sling Blade from. You will see where, you know, Napoleon Dynamite and Whiplash all came from because they're all, they're all there and they all started because somebody said, screw it, I'm gonna do it. And that's, that's what I, I tell people they need to do. So maybe we are too much in this mindset of like, I need to have my people do it. Oh wait, I don't have people. I need to get people. I need I, to get people. I, I'm, I, I'm not successful until I have yeah. people. And we're not willing to say, wait a minute, I'm not there yet. A lot of people have a hard time saying I'm not there yet. And um, that, that's a really good point, Karen. Um, we all have to be able to say we're not there yet and truly identify and, and accept when we're not and get over that next hump. I mean, I, I, I deal with a lot of actors that, you know, um, when we do workshops and, and do acting class, you know, work. And it's awesome, you know, I, I, I need a team. You need a team for what? You've had an agent for two years. You go out on 15 auditions a week. You're not booking. You need to better the craft. Do you ever think maybe you're just not good in the room? Do you ever think maybe you, you need to study better, you know, and they'll look at the reel and half the time they're not off book and they've had the work for three days and you're reading one scene. You're not off book yet. These are the kind of things that, that really will impact an actor from getting past an audition. And it's, it's very hard for artists. You know, we are so myopic. We are so self-centered anyway. It's in our nature. We were very selfish people, but when it comes to getting to the next level, it's very, very rare that somebody can look and say, it's me. I need to get off my butt and create content. I need to get into acting class two or three nights a week. I need to go take a class in basic lighting if I really wanna be a cinematographer or a director. I need to understand lenses. I need to, you know, I tell everybody who wants to write, produce, direct, and, and get in the edit bay. That's where you're gonna learn it more than anything because you're gonna see, you're gonna fix other people's mistakes. You're gonna, you're gonna learn what ends up on a cutting room floor. You're gonna realize the amount of time you waste on a set. And, and what that'll do is it'll better you when you make your short films. And it'll better you when, when writing scripts. I mean, it's amazing how many writers have never been in the edit bay. And that's the most important place. You know, there are three scripts. There's the one you write, the one that's shot, and the one that's cut. And if you can, if you can bridge the gap between the one that's written and the one that's released, boy, you know, it's a, it's a helpful tool. And I know writers are gonna bash me for saying that, but you know, get your butt to write in the edit bay and, and realize what, what you write and how it affects you know, production costs and you know, putting a certain amount of characters in a certain scene. And you gotta remember, you gotta cover all that, get multiple takes on every actor, you know? <laughs> and, and what that does to production. There's a lot of good, you know, we talk about this in other, in other webinars I've done, and, you know, the writer needs to understand a production mindset because there are some great scripts out there that, that don't get read past 20 or 30 pages and it's because they don't understand it from a producerial view where you really have to think about when you write a script, you can say, well, it's, it shouldn't be that expensive. It just takes place in a flat in New York, you know? And well, okay, how many people are in it? You know, how many different locations? What is your logistics here? And you have to think of who you're going after realistically to produce it and does it fit? and what they're doing. It's about finding that connection with the producer with your written word. 
but also kind of going back to what you said, making an agent's job easier. If you have an agent that isn't WME or CAA level, that's not gonna kick down doors and get you to every studio. You gotta realize the level of the agent or manager you're working with and where they have the ability to get you. Now, if you are able to work with somebody and somebody is showing interest in working with you, I think it's very important you have that talk early on is what is your ability to get me through the door? What are the studios, networks, production shingles, whatever they call them, where can you get my stuff read? So that artist, that writer can understand, okay, this manager can only get me in a hallmark. So they need to start thinking about, okay, let me get this stuff together for you that's gonna give you the path of least resistance, start getting my, my stuff to you that you can go to hallmark with, or is it lifetime? Let me get you some thrillers. Let me get you some, you know, husband came out of jail, wants to see his kid scripts. You know, let me give you some of those. And, you know, and that's, that's important. It's not just about being a good writer, it's about finding a match and finding out who your potential representatives have the ability or juice to get to. So the work that you submit to them, it, it resonates with the people that it's ultimately gonna get read by. Because if you have a great script and the people that are reading it have no business making a film like that or no interest in making a story like that, it doesn't matter. It's just wasted time. What if someone says though that I'm not a DIY person like that? I I, I want my, you know, I, I'm kind of grew up with staff and different things, so I need I need to have my people do this. Well, if you've grown, grown up with staff, you should be able to write checks or write a check and go make a movie. I mean, <laughs> that's fine. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. But yeah, I, I, then I think you're in the wrong business. I mean, it's it's very rare that somebody can sit in a basement and just crank out scripts and the day is going to come where that script is read by, you know, the right agent or the right assistant to an actor. And I mean, there's always the lottery. I mean, people win the lottery. That's true. You know, I, I think the odds are about the same. But I, I, I think you need to, if you're not DIY and you need people and you need a staff, then what I think you need to do is find other people that are needing a staff, but one of them has a camera and one of them is an actor and one of them may be an editor and work together. We talked earlier about people working together and building something special and building, building a team, everybody having a common goal, you know, to get to the next level. And that's what I tell a lot of writers. I said, you know, the cool thing about being a writer is you don't need anybody to tell you to go to work. You, you really have the only job in this industry that you, you may not get paid yet or at all, but nobody can tell you you can't work right now. You have the ability to roll out of bed, turn on a light at two in the morning and write. And that's a beautiful thing because an actor is not gonna be able to get in front of a camera and tap dance in, unless there's a script. Director doesn't have anything to direct unless there's a script. There's nothing to produce without a script. The writers are essential. I mean, it's so important. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible position to be in. If you're not able to be a writer, producer, director, editor, or filmmaker, and all your focus is, is on writing, then you need to get out more and you need to find people of like mind that have those skill sets or the materials to get your product seen. It's just, it's not gonna, sitting in a PDF on an external hard drive or you know, somewhere on your computer is not going to get it made. It's about getting it with people. And I'm very big, you know, a lot of people like to talk about pitch decks and proof of concept. Some of the most impressive things I've seen are when people go out and shoot a scene or two or three, to me, that's a real pitch deck. That's a proof of concept. I, I don't wanna see papers and comps and actors you're never gonna acquire on your proof of, you know, your, your pitch deck. I, I wanna see you go out and shoot a scene for your film with comparable qualified people and people that are passionate about it. And I think some of those true POCs that I've seen, they knock me out of my seat. I, I can't believe what people are putting together these days. 
And, and I mean for nothing, no money. There's no excuse. If you're not pissing someone off, you're not being heard? Sure. What's the logic behind that? Well, I think, um, I think that as, as artists, I think we're all looking for our voice. I think we're all looking to, to turn heads. And if you kind of just fall into the norm and you just kind of do what everybody thinks you should do, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get the attention you deserve. You know, you think about the films that have truly been game changers or the songs or the other works of art. It's because people were, weren't afraid to think outside of the box or think left of left. And, and change scares people. We talked earlier about fear, especially with the executives in this industry. And um, I just think that, you know, if we're coming off of, of time where there's been so much hatred passed back and forth, especially on social media between different sides of the fence, right? And at the end of the day, we're all humans. We need to, we need to unite. But what, what is apparent is if you just follow like sheep and just kind of go about your merry way, you're just, you're gonna, you're gonna fit nicely into a mold and they're gonna compartmentalize you. And I think some of the artists that I've respected most, um, they're not afraid of pissing people off and making change and making success come their way because they weren't afraid to, to rub people the wrong way. They weren't afraid to give somebody the big F you and say, I'm doing it this way. And I don't need your money. I don't need your distribution. We're just gonna go do it. I mean, you know, Robert Rodriguez is a classic example. Dennis Hopper, you know, when him and P Peter Fonda went out and did uh, Easy Rider. And, you know, some of the people that I admire as filmmakers, I mean, you know, looking at somebody like Hal Needham, um, who, you know, came from a tough stuntman background and, and understood the workings of how to make a movie, you know, breaking them down from shot to shot to working with the editors, the producers, the directors, the actors, the stuntmen, and finally just woke up one day and started making these great movies. And, you know, I'm inspired most by rebels. I'm inspired most by people that weren't afraid if people were going to approve. Doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but, you know, I think, I think there's certain things as artists that, that we have a responsibility to do. I mean, art is what changes the world. Um, movies, movies, Hollywood, songs, they, they set the tone for a culture. They change trends, you know, like that. And that's exciting to me. And, you know, when you hear me say, if you're not pissing people off, you're not being heard. Well, if you're just falling into what everybody else is doing, you're just falling into what everybody else is doing. You know, Quentin Tarantino became who he was because he did things his way. He, he was willing to roll the dice and fortunately found people that were willing to roll the dice with him. You know, Robert Rodriguez, Mike Figgis, we talked about him earlier. Um, Dennis Hopper, Hal Needham. I mean, some of these great filmmakers that just, they're not afraid to rub people wrong. They're not afraid to piss people off. They're not afraid to fail. They're gonna go down in a ball of flames. They're gonna do it their way, but man, if it works, watch out. And that just is kind of that mindset. So maybe it doesn't mean deliberately trying to piss people off, but, no. but knowing that there are going to be people that are going to be offended or A, they themselves feel they can't do that. So they don't want you to do it because absolutely not. their social structure wouldn't approve of them. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would get calls um, from people that I had produced with in the past that would say to me, you know, I, I'm really concerned that this investor may go on IMDb and see some of the things you've done in the past, whether it was with Zalman King or Charlie Sheen or whatever. And I'm like, 
yeah, okay, so what's the problem? You know, they've had a pretty good run. And, you know, it's this fear and of, of, you know, maybe certain people would be nervous or whatever. And I, I never understood that. I, I, I would always ask them to please explain that to me. You know, Charlie, somebody I was very proud of having a history with uh, in my career and is very instrumental in getting me to where I am in my life. And for somebody to come along and, and be nervous about the rebellion of, of a Charlie Sheen or a bad boy and, and somebody who, who made some of the most incredible erotic cinemas, Alman King. And, you know, those are people that basically gave people the middle finger and did what they wanted to do. I mean, one of my favorite Zalman King stories, and, and we didn't talk about this before, we talked about suits and artists, was I remember working with Zalman on a film and, and an executive from the studio was there. We were on the other side of the world. We were in Bali, Indonesia, and there was somebody there telling him how something had to be done. And he Oh, absolutely. It went through this whole dog and pony show that was so unzalman at the time. And the guy left. He just turned around and goes, fuck him. He goes, watch how we do this. And he goes, you got to remember something. He goes, if you're going to, if you're going to do something, you do it your way. You just got to learn how to tap dance and tell people what they want to hear. So they give you the opportunity to do it. But he goes, remember, if you screw up, you're done. But if you're successful, they'll take the credit for it, but you'll work again. And, you know, that's, that's kind of it. I just, you know, I, I just, I went through a phase where I was getting calls from a lot of, I don't know, more prim and proper entities that weren't much into the mentality of just going out and doing what you want to do. Everything was very structured. Everything was very formulaic, which is not something that I fall well into. And I just found that there was a lot of things that they were trying to, to reshape, curb, or, you know, kind of protect from certain people they were involved with knowing. It's like, well, you know, there is something called the internet. It's all out there, you know? <laughs> but my point is, is that I, I learned really quickly that there, there are a lot of people that, as you said, it's fear. They, they're afraid of being looked at as a rebel or somebody who likes to kick the dirt or whatever. And I, I personally don't, don't care. I personally don't care. I, you know, do what you want, do what you love, love what you do and, and do it feels right in here, as long as you're not hurting anybody. And uh, if it pisses people off, say, La Vie, oh, well, good, I'm glad I got some free rent in your head. <laughs> you think people are scared of that personality type because it can't be controlled? I, I think there's, I, you know, I think it's not about trying to be rebellious or being controlled. I think, yeah, there's a lot of people that want to try to conform you, especially as artists, into what they want you to be or what their end game is. Um, I think a lot of, there's so many intricate parts in filmmaking. You know, there are people that bridge the money together with the product and then the product with the artist and then the artist with the output. And there's so many people that have to be kept happy. And again, it goes back to, I think, executives and artists being able to learn how to communicate better, better lines of communication and understanding each other better. Um, but I think that there is a lot of fear and and we've been fortunate in working with people in in our circle that the decision makers that come at our end who are the ones writing our checks they they love what we do they get what we do and they trust us and they say we're doing this because we believe in you and we're doing this because we like what you do and what you represent so go do it and and that's it doesn't matter if they're giving you five dollars for a film or five million for a film it's just about working with people who understand you and if 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 you're a true artist and there are things that you want to express or there's things that you want to experiment with, I think you need to respect yourself enough to do that. I'm all for doing work to get paid. You know, that we've all been works for hire. 
things that we wouldn't put on our resume or maybe things that we're not excited about. There's nothing wrong. Go work. Every time you work, you're going to learn. Every time you get another credit, you know, you'll put some groceries away in the in the cupboards and you get to eat and it's fun. You get to pay rent and all that fun stuff. But I think you also have to remember to allow yourself that freedom and to be able to do that. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of people that are afraid. I, I know I was working with somebody in the past that was working with some entities that were not exciting to me. And there was there was a, a concern about what I represented as a filmmaker, what my attitude is in making the films that I want to make and where they were thriving in other networks and other outlets that were like oil and water. And I finally got to the point, I was like, you got to pick a side. You know, you're either gonna, you're either gonna do what I do or you're gonna keep doing that, which no disrespect, that's, that's cool, it pays your bills. But if you're gonna come here, you're not gonna stifle what I do hoping that these other entities are not offended because you're affiliated with me. I don't embarrass anybody. I'm not going to, you know, kill puppies or beat children, but there is certain types of mentalities, mindsets and content that we make that may not fit on the family channel. And that's just not the kind of content I want to make. So yeah, I think there's a lot of people who try to stifle and try to conform artists into being what they want them to be. For the wrong reasons and that's that's to me is you know that can be very dangerous for the artist did you watch the queen's gambit i actually did i was afraid you were gonna ask me if i saw something which i didn't see oh okay <laughs> thank, thank you for not asking if i saw bridgerton okay sure sure so so forgive me if i'm blanking on the character's name but thomas brody sangster sangster if I, I hope I'm saying his name right. So the one that's like this rebel chess player oh, yeah. who kind of saunters yeah, yeah, yeah. in. It's kind of the James Dean. Right, he's the yeah. James, yeah. And then once you finally get to know him, he's actually a sweetheart. Of course. But he has this mystique and this persona of this bad boy chess player amongst some very cookie cutter, intellectual, overthinking, you know. Stanford graduates. Right, exactly. Right. Smart people. Smart people, right. but, but also very invested in their identities as smart people. Yeah. And so this guy comes in and he's just like this, you don't know what to make of him. You're fascinated by him. Yeah. But anyway, so I just, it kind of reminds me of that. I just That's that a great analogy. And it was a great show. We really enjoyed that. I think like the rest of the world, we caught that during COVID. We didn't buy a chess set afterward. Um, but uh, yeah, and you know, I think there are ways, it, I, and I hate to keep bringing him up, and, and I owe so much of my career to Zalman. Zalman King, if you don't know who he is, look him up. Um, Zalman took me under his wing, you know, 25 years ago. Um, and I learned more from my, my years with Zalman than anybody. And Zalman was a true rebel. I mean, he was a Golden Globe nominated actor turned writer who wrote, you know, nine and a half weeks with, with his wife and, and went on to direct some of the most incredible, incredible cinema. Um, and nobody told a story through a lens like Zalman. Nobody could. And the careers he launched and discovered are endless, whether you talk about Mickey Rourke or Kim Bassinger or you know, David, David Duchovny, and uh, just the, the list goes on and on and on. And my point is, Zalman had a relationship. His partner was a, was a man who I still am very close to by the name of David Saunders. David, David was running um, one of the, the sub-studios under Sony when Peter Gruber was there. And Zalman and this suit became friends. And they wound up creating Red Shoe Diaries and launching Showtime. And that was really their first series. And built an empire on this, this incredible series starring a guy that nobody knew about called David Duchovny. That, you know, just opened the letters and read them and read them to his dog usually and made these incredible women empowering erotic cinema. And, the relationship that I most admired of all the relationships I've known in Hollywood was Solomon and David. And um, just 
talk about Mutt and Jeff, you know, apples and four trucks, yin and yang. And boy, were they, were they, that's the kind of relationship executives and, and, and artists should have because they, they conquered the world. I mean, you may not like what they did, but they conquered the world. Yeah, I think each needs each other because, really? because one is going to have one skill set that the other doesn't have and vice versa. And Absolutely. one will be organized, one will be sort of a, a beautiful <laughs> and mess. And one will be very and, unorganized. Yeah, and, and they need each other. <laughs> and they really, they really fed off of one another. And there was nobody better in the room. They would fight like cats and dogs. I remember, you know, David Duchovny said when Zalman passed that he was a true artist. He'd think more about the curtains in the room and the color and the sheen they would give off off a certain light at the certain time of day he would shoot. Ed Zolman would focus on that for hours. And then, you know, want something painted a certain color and David would come in and say, whoa, 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 back up. How much money are you spending on painting these things? You know, how, how much are you spending on this fabric, Zolman? Well, well that's, that's insane, you can't do it. They'd fight, well then, F it, I'm not doing a movie. David looked at me, sorry, Shane, movie's canceled, have a good life, you know, and I, I just slowly go for a walk. I knew they'd fix it, and they always did. They did that, you know, almost every day, but they were an incredible duel, duo. And uh, that's the kind of relationship that I, I wish for artists to have with somebody. Because they, they really, David was the business and Zalman was the artist. And boy, did they just, they were amazing. Is it a producer's job to gather IP? Well, I, I would think so. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, Neil Moritz, uh, who, who is the, the master behind Fast and the Furious, you know, you think about how that, that incredible franchise was birthed off of an article in the back of the Metro in the LA Times. I think it was a Metro section or Valley section about subculture of street racing and those cars. And that's what a great producer does is they comb articles. You know, a lot of lazy ones like to watch 2020 or Dateline. Those things usually don't get made into movies. If they do, they, they only go so far. Um, I, I find that some of the great producers that I've been fortunate enough to know are the ones that would give me the time of day to at least, you know, talk to. It's these, these, these guys are on the hunt. They are constantly looking for a needle in a haystack. You know, whether it's Neil Moritz or David Heyman or, you know, David Zilan, they are just constantly looking, looking, looking for that thing that just knocks them over. And I, I think good producers don't wait for it to come to them. I, I think it's a producer's job to, you know, I, we talked about the music industry earlier, what made, what made a great record executive. And it was the ones that went to the nightclubs, you know, the Roxy, the Whiskey, and the Gazaris at two o'clock, you know, on a Monday night and watched that headlining band on a Monday or a Tuesday. That's, that's where bands like Van Halen were found. And, you know I, know, I know their history, but I'm just saying that they were signed off of a really crappy attended night on the strip on a weeknight. And I think producers need to be more proactive. I think, you know, we, we have gotten to the point where it's, we are so used to everything being at our fingertips. We can research everything. We, you know, instant gratification. And I think the days, you know, I mean, there were, I remember when, when I knew Neil Moritz years ago, long before we did Gridiron Gang together, I never saw Neil without scripts. You know, I, I mean, every time you saw Neil, he had scripts. He was always reading. That guy was just constantly, he was a sponge for content. And, you know, it paid off. Look at the career he's had. I mean, the guy's doing everything. And, um, it's about finding those, you know, those books that nobody has the rights to that you that you see, wow, this can this this IP can change the world. And, you know, I'd be careful. Um, you know, if if it's successful, it's probably owned. But I think there are some gems out there that are waiting to be found. That, you know, it's always nice when a producer, especially somebody younger or newer, or somebody who may be more green, 
or not have the deep pockets that some of these, these folks have to be able to find something and create it and, and get it made. But I, I think it's, it's a producer's job. That's if you're gonna produce, you know, there's two kinds of producers. There's they're the ones that find the IP, raise the money, get the distribution and the stars attached. And then there's the, the producers that are, you know, more the line producers that are on the film that are, you know, hiring the crew and getting the locations and getting all the, the vendors and gear and everything done. But, you know, when you talk about a producer who is going to do the suit side of the job, uh, if you will, um, I, I think it's just so important to just be a sponge, be open to anything and everything. You just never know where you're going to find that, that, that thing, you know. And how would one know if the rights are owned, whether it's life story rights or there's actually a script or? Yeah, you know, in acquiring property, is, is several different ways you can do it. I mean, if I, one of the one of the biggest passion pieces I have that I swear I'm going to get made before I die is the Kelly Sutton story. Uh, I mean, here's a, here's a woman who held the the speed record at Daytona, who's living with multiple sclerosis. I mean, she was supposed to die when she was eight years old. She's cheated death seven times. I think she's been a widow three times over. Her story is unbelievable. Um, I was shooting a documentary in in Wyoming, in Montana, when the whole world was on fire up there back in like 01, 02. And I was sitting in a Holiday Inn, and we were we were basically being kept in a hotel because of the fire danger. And I, I had nothing to do. The TVs were out, the electricity was out, and I went into the lobby of the hotel, and I found this Sports Illustrated, and there was a tiny little sub article. You know, you could read through the magazines, and they've sometimes got a little sub something on the side, and and it said she'll she'll stop at nothing. That was the name of the, the article, and it was about Kelly Girl Sutton, and. It was three paragraphs, four paragraphs long. It was the most incredible piece I'd ever read. I got home. I reached out to the family, to, to NASCAR. I found her. You know, the internet wasn't as amazing back then. was able to find her, talk to her parents, got in touch with Kelly, flew out to a race, watched her race, an, a NASCAR event. And uh, such a wonderful human being. And one of, the, one of the most delightful business relationships I've had. You know, I, I feel like, we failed. We haven't gotten the film made yet. We came very close a couple times. Um, had a green light at a network that an agent was good enough to ruin. Agents are good at that. Um, but that when you find somebody's story that you want to tell, if you're a producer, I think the most important thing that you you need to do is is is, is be humble. You know, a lot of people in our industry go to people with hype and pomp and circumstance with all the promises. You know and but look, when somebody's story is breaking news, like the little girl that fell in the well 30 years ago, every studio in Hollywood's gonna try to get that, you know? So step aside, you're not getting those rights. Chances are. Um, but, you know, if you find something that you like as an article in the back of a three-year-old Sports Illustrated or you see a piece on TV or you, you caught a news segment, you know, I, I always say reach out as humble as possible and just say, look, I, I fell in love with your story. I want to tell your story and I want to see it's told in a way that you can be proud of that will represent you and your family. Um, and just go in with, with, with a servant's heart. I've been fortunate to, to own a lot of intellectual properties of life rights, you know, whether it was the Rick and Dickie Hoyt story or, you know, uh, the Gridiron Gang. That's one uh, that we had. Um, it's just, it's about being kind. It's about being gentle. It's not about selling the hype, you know. A lot of people go into those things not realizing that the people that they're approaching are not Hollywood people. So 
they're very off-put by our energy often, you know, whether we call it passion or pomp and circumstance or just a bunch of bullshit, I don't know, but we tend to go in on 10. And a lot of these people have often just gone through pretty dramatic situation in their life or a pretty extraordinary situation. They're being courted by all sorts of people or getting all sorts of press that they're not used to. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that these people are not of our world in business. There are ways to try to penetrate their, their, their world and not be, you know, intrusive. Great way to get IP though. Is to scour articles? Oh, articles, datelines, you know, 2020s. You, you get to a point though where a lot of executives will start hearing things and they'll say, it sounds like a dateline. It sounds like a 2020 story. You know, things are probably better served there. But there are some remarkable stories that come out of them. There really are. I mean, I fell in love with the, the Bruce Murakami story. I don't know if anybody remembers that, where the poor gentleman was, you know, his, his wife and two children got into a minivan and went to the store and they were, they were T-boned by a street racer, killed the wife and two kids. And um, the kid was gonna go to prison and Bruce stepped in and, and asked for mercy from the court. And it was the ultimate story of, of compassion and trying to change a life instead of sending a 16-year-old kid to prison for 10 years. I'm gonna take this kid under my wing. I'm gonna, and I, I saw it on Dateliner 2020, like 20 years ago. Bruce flew out, met with him and, and um, I really liked Bruce a lot, but he was also being courted by everybody else. Film ended up getting made, I think, with Dean Cain and Lifetime or something. But it was it was it was one of those things you knew it was going to get made. You know, it's, it's interesting. But uh, you know, yeah, it's just about you're basically pitching. You, as a filmmaker, you know, we talk about writers going into the room and pitching. And you may not be a writer if you're a producer, but you have to meet the family or the survivors, people that have gone through some extraordinary circumstances, and try to pitch them on feeling comfortable with you. I mean, you're selling them on you and your game plan and your tone and temperament. When did you realize you had to transition away from screenwriting? I was horrible at it. I mean, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, I, I just, you know, I, I, I worked as a screenwriter for a number of years. I was very fortunate. Um, I was more passionate about being on set and working with people. I'm a people person at the end of the day. It's one of my many faults. And when you're a writer, you're, you're isolated, you're locked up. And you're that way too as an editor, which I still get stuck doing. But it's, it's more interaction, um, you know. But I just, I just got to the point where I, you know, I, as, as I got older and realized where my passions were and my energies were and my strengths and weaknesses were, writing just, I, I started working with, you know, people, you know, I, I work a lot with C.J. Wally. I, I just, when I read his work, it made me want to make movies again. I was, I was done, you know. I was ready to phone, you know, be done, do the book, go teach. I had a teaching opportunity at a university to come in and I, I read a script that CJ wrote and I said, this guy makes me want to keep making movies. And I realized that this, this guy can tell the stories, that, the kind of stories I want to tell and we collaborated really well together. And, you know, it's exciting when you read somebody's work that inspires you to keep going because I was, you know, I was tired. I had been beaten a bag a long time and kind of thought, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate. I've been very blessed. I made my mark, good, bad, or indifferent. I made a mark. It may have been a stain in some people's eyes, but I made one. And I wanted to teach and inspire and encourage the next generation. And, and I, just, I just felt that the amount of time it took to write and, 
it wasn't allowing me to make a film a year or two films a year the way I wanted to. And uh, it's great to work with somebody who understands and gets me, knows how to write for schedule and budget. We, we want to tell the same stories. I don't need to do that anymore. <laughs> What's it like having written and developed your own work, now hiring writers or partnering with other writers to tell those stories? Well, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to focus on, on certain things and not spread out too thin. You know, write, produce, direct, edit, get the financing, all that stuff. It, it's, it really is, it's a taxing business. I mean, it, this business will eat you up even if you have one job. And, you know, spending the years writing and developing something and trying to get it financed and get it produced, um, it takes a lot of time. And, and I, I kind of go back to having the ability to work with somebody who we, we, we both want to tell the same stories. We both want to make fun action comedy, action thriller, female driven, let the guys sit in, in the passenger seat, let the girls drive, make these fun films. And we, we both love the same kind of movies. We're both inspired by the same kind of movies, you know, going back to like the old Hal Needham films, you know, dirt movies and, you know, fast cars, you know, race against time, cannonball run, Smokey and a bandit, you know, and, it's just, it's easy. It's, it's, it's almost like we don't even, it's just like, hey, we're gonna line up to do another one. What do you think about this? Hmm, interesting. Okay, what if we do that? It's a very simple process that the long part of it is, is you know, CJ, in, in our situation, CJ will just go through the whole breakdown and develop development notes and, you know, basically block it out, you know? And then once that's done, the scripts come very fast. It's a very fast process. Like we did Double Threat. That was created in, Mid-September, we were shooting that by October 15th. I mean, we had a script in six days. You know, we all knew the story we wanted to tell. It was just about going out and rolling a dice during COVID and doing it. And uh, as I said earlier, it was the most fun I've ever had making a movie. And I hope, I hope that translates on the screen. We had a lot of fun. How many writers do you have working for you now? I work with, uh, CJ Wally is, is, you know, my point. We're doing a lot of stuff together right now. Uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of W.T. Smith's work. We've, we've done some specs together over the years. I think he's such a brilliant writer. Um, he's poetic in every breath and every, every space between a word is just, it's, it's magic. He's, he's a brilliant writer. Um, Nicole Fairbrother is, is a, a writer that I, I was fortunate enough to find. She's up in Canada. She's, she's a lovely writer. I'm a big fan of her work. I hope to do stuff with her someday. Um, but right now I'm, I'm primarily working with CJ because we have a slate of projects that we're doing that we have a commitment on that we have to do. And, and it's exciting. It's fun. How many years have you worked with the same writers? Well, you know, I, um, I've worked with, with uh, W.T. Smith off and on for like 10 years we've collaborated. He's, he's done some amazing work. Um, and I've worked with CJ now. I think we're going on year... I think we're hitting year four, three or four. You know, I see, I see working with writers as like a marriage. Um, you know, it's a lot, a lot like a DP in a, in a director's relationship. I think if you, if you started off in, in, in a certain synchronicity, you know, carry that out through the end. And, you know, CJ has become a producer partner um, because he doesn't just write, but, you know, he's so involved in what we do and, you know, we cut the films and, I like getting him involved because, you know, as we talked about earlier, I, I am a firm believer there are three scripts. There's the one that's written, the one that's shot, and the one that's cut. And 
we, we get every time we get closer and closer to writing a cut film. But, you know, there's also a respect factor that I have. You know, it's funny when we first met, he was shocked that I wanted him to come out from London to be on set when we did Break Even. You know, like, why wouldn't the writer be there? You know, and the writer's standpoint was, well, we're never invited out. You know, it's, we got the script, we got what we wanted from you, thank you, you'll see the film when it's done. And I just think, you know, when somebody births something, creates something, I think they become a very important part of the entire process. I think it's a respect level. Um, there are times where, you know, we have to cut films down because of distribution deals where, you know, television's gonna only allow so much time. You know, we're not getting 3,500 screens, we're not Quentin Tarantino, we can make these three hour movies about Hollywood or whatever, and, and I love his work. I'm just saying that you don't have that ability. We, we have to keep our films under 95 minutes. Well, if you shoot the script and you glue it together and you've got, you know, two hours, you got 30 minutes, you gotta rip out. You know, who better to ask than the, than the, than the writer at first to say, hey, look, we're 30 minutes over, man. Let's start talking about what, what can go. Instead of just hacking it away and maybe not being as sensitive to some of the nuances or subtleties that were planted early on. And I've made that mistake in not involving the writer on those edits. And that's something that I, I wouldn't do again. You know, it's just sometimes where distributors come in and say, well, we love it, we're gonna take it out, but you gotta shorten it by 20 minutes and you just, you're in a hurry and you, everybody thinks they know where the best places to hack are. And I think it's, it's good to involve the writer, it's smart. We understand your strategy is to develop a log line and a synopsis, and will you try to pitch investors first or the distributors? You're asking me personally? Um, I often will come up, for me, a title is important. I, I, I get stuck in the mud without a cool title. My movies may suck, but our titles are cool. And uh, I need that, that gives me some fuel. Um, we know the stories we wanna tell. Um, and synopsis is, we, we come up with, a, with an idea. What, what's, what's our idea, what's the story? And that inspires it. And we just start, you know, who are, the, who are the players? Who are the protagonists, antagonists? Who are the, you know, what's the hero's journey? What are their, what are their pitfalls and hurdles gonna be? You know, what's, what's the ticking time bomb? What's gnawing at them? And then we, we go through it and, you know, break it down and start doing our development notes and, and what I get excited about it, I, I call our investors and I say, you know, we're, we're ready you know, we're ready to go and we know the story we wanna tell. And usually it's just a paragraph that they want from us. Um, you know, th that's, in, in, at least in our situation, that's what we do. We, we get to do what we wanna do. We're very fortunate. So we, there's, it's, it's pretty much coming up with the story we wanna tell and going and doing it and, and let ships fall where they may. You know, it kind of comes back to doing things the way you want to do them and not not allowing people to tell you how to do things or why do things so we're open to you know suggestions and stuff but we tell the stories we want to tell and we cast the people we want to cast and we make the movies we want to make and we don't ask for permission so if the title is very important to you how much back and forth and disagreements have you had over titles and has that put the kibosh on the beginning titles of the have never, sorry to cut you off. Titles have never been a problem. That's that's one thing that I often come up with. Um, the film that we're starting in September, we 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 had about a five second clash on a title. There were two titles that we both liked, and we're going with the other one. And the more I think about it, the more cool I am with it. But um, titles, it's never been a problem. I just when I was writing, I needed a title. I needed a title to get excited. 
If I didn't have it, I couldn't be, I couldn't get excited about it. I needed to get excited about blowing smoke. I needed to get excited about, you know, double threat. I need to get excited about break even. I needed, once I had a title, I can just, that's all I needed. I can just, I'm all in. Give me that title and I'm all in. You know, at least in, in my world. It's just so important to me. Yeah, it's everything. It's everything. And, and it doesn't mean my titles are great, but at least to me they are, right? I mean, we all love our children. <laughs> so the untitled Shane Stanley project is not going to work for you. The, the, no. You can't, you no. can't get no. out of bed at 2 a.m. to start typing for that. No. No. Does not. There, there are no untitled Shane Stanley scripts or projects, I promise you. It has to have a title if it's going to get the time of day from me. Yeah. It's really important. And you seem to like shorter titles or no? I think they're easier for people to remember. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying all the titles that I've, I've had are, are winners at the end of the day, but I, I learned early, you know, I, I did a couple of films with Avi Lerner back in the day and because he sold globally, titles were so important. I learned that titles have to translate globally. You know, we can come up with the greatest title in the world. If that doesn't translate into 14 different languages, that's not a good title. And that's really important. And, you know, something that people can remember, something that people say often, you know, people say, I break even, you know, they're a double threat, you know, oh, he's just blowing smoke. You know, those are the kind of titles that, that appeal to me a lot. You know, that's just me personally, but I remember that. I remember when, when I was working with Avi, when Blockbuster and Hollywood Video were still a thing, he used to say, when you come up with a title, it's important to remember people are going to start at new releases at A and they're going to work their way to Z. Most people are done choosing by the time we get to M. Which is funny, our most successful film was with an N, no code of conduct with Avi, but that was his kind of his model in coming up with titles. So I never forgot that. And people laugh at me when I throw that out because they're like, blockbuster what? And it's different now because everything's on a thumbnail. Everybody's you know checking stuff online or gets promoted and doesn't matter. But that was Avi's mentality. And you think about the success Avi Lerner has had over the last 30 or 40 years of being one of the most prolific independent filmmakers in history. Um, okay, that's some advice I learned from Avi. That's one thing I'll take away from that relationship. Yeah, so I, titles are important. Something catchy, quick, simple. You know. What is the three billboards outside of Ebbing's Montana? I mean, but that worked. It worked, but what did everybody call it? I don't know. Three billboards. Okay. Yeah. Right. Do you see three Three. That's a tongue twister, right? <laughs> did you see billboards yet? That's what I remember. Yeah. Do you always go to a distributor first with your idea? Um, I I run it by them. I'll run it by them. You know, I have a good relationship with with a distributor that um, that we have, and I I just tell them this is what we're doing. I mean, I, I, and I don't mean that. I just, I, I, we go make the films we want to make. People can catch it or they, they don't have to. Um, we're, we're at a point where I don't care if it's, it's going in the dirt with 50 grand and a couple of stolen cameras and we're going to shoot our movie. You know, fortunately, we haven't had to do that yet, but I would. That's what we were going to do with Double Threat during COVID. We, we literally had 50 grand offered to us to do something during COVID. And we were, we were all in and we got fortunate and, and, one of our backers was excited to hear we wanted to do something and said, no, let's, let's do it right. But that's our mentality. We just, we just want to make movies. They'll find a home. They'll find a home. So, you know, it takes time to get to that point. And it's, it's, it's just being able to do the things you want with the people you love 
and the people that are behind you, whether they're writing a check or putting the film out, get what you do. And they know what they're gonna, they know what to expect with us. They know what they're gonna get. So, you know, it's, I, I talked to a distributor the other day and it was, oh, you're making a movie? When do you start? September 28th. Oh, do, do, do you wanna tell us what this one is? <laughs> oh, I can, sure. You know, that was the discussion. We're making it anyway. <laughs> Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Will you ever have a full screenplay written when you pitch distributors or only the idea? I'm not gonna to talk to a distributor until I'm financed. So, I mean, that's just me personally. I, I'm not gonna waste anybody's time. I'm not gonna call an actor. I'm not gonna call anybody until we're, we're, you know, at this point where it's like, okay, yeah, we can make a movie. Um, often, you know, who reads scripts anymore? I mean, you can't get agents to read them. Lord knows they don't do that. You know, are distributors really going to read a script? No, they want to see a dumb movie. They want to know what you're doing. You know, they're just going to throw it to somebody for coverage. And if you're making your movies based on coverage, I think that's a bad thing. Some of the greatest movies in history got covered so poorly. Some of the worst movies in history were some of the greatest coverage films. I mean, it's, it's you know, it, it, who's reading and who's covering? Um, sometimes coverage is done out of respect. Well, somebody will say, well, we want to take this out. Um, we'd like to take a look at it and get some coverage on it. Okay. And they usually call back and say, you checked all the boxes. It's, it's fine. Go, go have fun. Go do it. But that's, that's not how we make movies. It's, it's not about committee. It's, it takes a team. But we, our job is to make the film. And it's not our job to distribute or sell it. And we have a mutual respect where you know what you're going to get when we do something. And I know what to expect from you when you're going to put it out. And I won't tell you how to do your job. Let me do mine. And that's the relationships that we like to have with our distributors and, and sales agents. And it's just, it's just, you know, it comes from time, time, and time. It's been beating the bag for, you know, producing films for over 30 years. You, you can, you know, get to a situation with some people that are willing to trust you. And it's about trust. It's about doing films. And another reason I'm an indie rat is I like, I don't, I don't put our investors at, at risk, you know, make the movie for what it can get made for. So the, the, the stakes are low. So people aren't, you know, you're not ending up wearing cement shoes in two years because you know you couldn't give something away that cost millions of dollars. I mean, it happens all the time. That's not how we make our movies. We make our movies. We punch way above our weight class. We we way outkick our punk coverage on these things, and we get great cast, great crew. We make them look as good as we can. It's a Roger Corman idea. It's the same mentality. I mean, how many films did Roger Corman kick out? You know, it's it's just about doing what we love and getting them done and and having fun and giving giving people content. That's our job, and um, I, I don't like to overcomplicate it. I, I will, I will never go to a distributor without a script. I mean, there's nothing to talk about if there's no money. You know, I, I don't talk to them until it's it's we're financed, we're ready to go, and then we're making it. That's just that's just the the timeline of what we do now. When you were making movies with Charlie Sheen at that time, how much did it cost to make them, and how much were the distributors paying you for the movies? Back when we were doing those, um, we were an independent company that, that kind of decided to do its own content. It was kind of the early working with some of the majors but getting a real taste of independent filmmaking. Um, we were really in a fortunate, fortunate situation because Charlie was a movie star. You know, he had just come off things like Terminal Velocity and Shadow Conspiracy and, you know, The Arrival and, and his incredible catalog of work. And so we, we had the Avi learners coming to us saying, We'll, we'll give you up to 10 to $12 million to go make a movie. And so 
they weren't distributors that were buying them. They were people like Avi that obviously would, you know, smart businessman. He would he would cast it with real players and go sell it at Cannes or AFM before we even shot a foot of film. I remember we went to Cannes um, for the 50th anniversary and they put us up at the Hotel du Cap and um, we had a press conference and it was mock artwork of the film with Charlie Sheen, Mark Dacascos, um, Joe Lando, Martin Sheen, and you know, they pre-sold that thing globally, I'm sure for a lot more than they gave us to make it. it the film did very well. Um, Miramax Dimension actually ended up picking it up and they made some good TV deals on it. And we made the film for 12. We actually made it for nine because we shot it in Arizona at the time. And they, at the time, had a 30% rebate. So we got, I think, $3 million back in actual cash rebate. It wasn't tax incentives. It was cash rebate. And that's how movies used to be made, especially in such a huge home video market. That was the, the height of Blockbuster and, you know, Hollywood video and all those great, you know, brick and mortar mom and pop stores were just, they, they were printing money because of the home video market. And DVDs coming out, Blu-ray hadn't hit yet. So they were giving us a lot of money. You know, we were making some of these indie films for eight to 12 million. Those were good times. Those were really good times. How much easier was it to make movies in the 90s? Well, I don't know if it was easier. Um, there, when we were making them, you know, the budgets were big. We were able to kick out a couple a year. Um, and again, the home video market was so was so big. You know, you were able to get territories to put up a lot of money around the globe for the home video market, TV rights, foreign theatrical. You know, things have changed substantially. Um, I find it easier to make movies now because we're able to make movies for a lot less. I mean, we're shooting all those movies on Panavision 35 millimeter cameras. You know, that camera package to rent, that film to, to buy and process and telecine and convert to video, you know, digital format so you can cut it on your Avids, which back then cost $180,000. You know, it, it, movies were expensive back then. Uh, we weren't making them for cheap. Um, it's just, you know, and we were doing independent films. And, you know, I cringe today when I hear about independent movies that are like $5 million. I'm like, that's no indie. You know, yeah, $5 million in today's economy. Be great with the, the toys that we have that we can make movies for. But back then we were doing the indies for, you know, eight to 12 million. What should a filmmaker use to determine a budget? Whatever he can get. And I mean that, I, I'm a big proponent of what's your budget, who cares? I, you know, so many of us, it's, it's about a budget. You know, you can get it broken down six ways till Sunday, 10 different line producers, break it down, budget it. You can use all your different pay scales with the unions and whatnot. That's all, that's all gonna be black and white. But at the end of the day, what's stopping you from getting the movie made? So for me, I don't think about what a budget has to be. I think about, I always put my investor first. I always think what's gonna put he or she at the lowest risk? Um, how do we execute this to the best of our ability so we can outkick our punk coverage, we can outpunch our weight class, put, put it all on the screen and wow people for a fraction of what people think we actually made it for. That's just my mentality. Doesn't mean it's right for everybody. So when I look at a project, when, when, when an investor calls me and says, we're ready to go, or I call them and say, I'm ready to go, what's your comfort level for the next season? And they tell me, um, I say, okay, this is how much we have. What can we do with this? I, I kind of go into it bass backwards. And I, I, I just, I, I watch filmmakers time and time again, not get movies made because they've set some, some budget 
in their mind. And, and unless you're being given the money by a studio or a network, who is really governing that that's what the budget has to be? Um, you know, my father tried for four years to get Desperate Passage made. He had a million dollar budget back in 1980. Well, it started in 82. So a million dollars was a lot of money back then. Finally, in 1985, 86, he got 25 grand to go make the movie. That was, you know, cutting really short to the chase on this story. And my my mother, my father, and I, with a couple of, of tight filmmaker friends, we, we huddled together and figured out how we were going to do it. And I don't think the film would have been at all different if we had had the million versus the 25. I don't think a frame of the film would have been any different. And the success that that film had, it taught me how to make movies for nothing. And you know, what it launched, you know, ultimately Gridiron Gang and a lot of, you know, seven other movies of the week that collectively did very well. That all came from a $25,000, let's do this from a million dollar budget. So for me, I always tell a filmmaker, what do you have access to? What are your means? If you're going to write the check yourself, uh, what can you afford? How can you do this? Really break it down. Let's not think about putting all the money in your pocket. Let's think about building content. Are you going to be able to own the library when it's all said and done? It's become a valuable asset to you 20 years from now. And I think it, it just, you know, in most of the, the, the talks that we give with, with producers and webinars, it's, it's the main reason people are not making their content is because they can't raise the money that they've, the self-imposed budget. And I just think sometimes if they, they really, really learn the craft of, of how to get things done and not chintz out on what your ultimate vision is. I mean, it's not about cheapening out or chintzing out. You, okay, sure, you're not going to get George Clooney on a $500,000 budget versus a $50 million budget. But is you trying to get that $50 million going to be 10 years from now, you talking about getting that movie made still, or have you moved on to five other movies you still haven't made? And, and for me, it's about getting excited about making a project and doing everything you can to get it done. And okay, this is what we have to do it. We're getting it done for this. Let's go. And that, that's probably one reason that I that I have the career I have, where it's it's not about the budget and what it has to be. It's this is what we can do our next project for. Let's create this content for this budget. And and every project you do is going to build you to another level, whether it's dollars or actor level or distribution or whatever. You have to look at you know this this industry. We we hear about the success stories, but for for most of us, it's a, it's truly a marathon. It's not a sprint, and you have to look long term. It's like you know when you put money into a CD or an IRA. It's long-term growth, and you have to look at this career like that because having a script you're running around town with trying to raise 10, 15, $20 million on and not getting it done does not get anything done. But if you're able to get similar content or even that, that passion project of yours done for the money that you really can get or, or raise and you get it done, it's just going to build and build and build to get to where you ultimately want to go. And personally, I'd rather have four or five films under my belt in five years than talking about making one. That's just me personally. You know, just that's my advice to filmmakers is, is really think about what you can do something for and, and where is this budget coming from? Because if the content is good and the cast is respectable enough to get eyeballs, you're, you're going to have, you know, hopefully some success with it. You're going to move it. And just because the budget's high does not guarantee success. It doesn't guarantee distribution. There's a lot of very expensive movies that are sitting in cans right now that have been done for years with A-list stars that have never seen the light of day. You know, I mean, you know, go make content. That's what it's about. Would you say you're asking for less money these days when you approach an investor? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the go-to for everybody, I think, that is pitching an investor 
is, well, there's so much, so much opportunity for, for distribution now. Well, there might be, but what does it pay? You know, the, the home video market is done. That was really the biggest revenue that we were seeing on our independent films. When, when, when Blockbuster and, and Hollywood Video was out and before the Netflix world, the, the money that us indie folks saw was, was pretty substantial on the returns. That's not happening anymore. So you're streaming, you're seeing sometimes pennies, pennies for streams and AOD and VODs where before you were seeing dollars. So what we try to do is we, we've got it figured out how to make films on a dime and, and make them at least the production value is good. So what we do is we present a product that is marketable, it looks good, it fits with everything else that's happening that we were able to produce for a fraction of the cost of what everybody else is making it for, which when it sells, the deals are smaller, but the investors are still happy because the risk was low. The rewards are what they are, but it all, it all comes parallel. What's happened is the budgets, you know, for the films that we do at like 500, 650,000, when home video was around, that was gold. But because everything's streaming now, for the most part, you may get a few TV deals that pay okay, but you don't want to count on those. Those are, those are like, you know, Easter eggs are great when you find them. But you want to keep your investors happy, you know, money out, money in. And the returns on those are not only lower, they also take forever to pay. These streaming deals, you know, when you work with a distributor, they usually have 90 days after the previous quarter to pay. Well, they're still dealing with the same thing at their end from the, the streaming platforms. So the streaming platforms could take 90 to 120 days to report and pay them, and then they have another 90 days after the quarter to pay you. So you could be looking at eight, nine months before you see a dime on a stream. So these are things that you have to be very upfront about with your investors. You have to let them know that this is, this is the way it is now. Um, you know, the misnomers that there's so many, you know, big dollar deals for everybody. You hear and read about the big dollar deals. That's, that's what keeps the wheels turning. But the majority is you're dealing with smaller deals. And I, I really encourage filmmakers to try to keep their, their budgets lower so they can get more content made. You can really learn how this industry is working if you're not working at the studio system. What would you say is the sweet spot that an independent filmmaker should spend on their movie? I think a sweet spot for an independent filmmaker is, it's different for everybody because content, different content drives more dollars internationally. You know, comedy, if it's circumstantial comedy, that's one thing, but if it's, it's written comedy, it doesn't always translate foreign. So you're limiting your foreign. Um, certain films don't do well overseas. So I don't think there's a sweet spot for everybody. I think there are sweet spots that people can do. And if you're gonna spend more money, just put it in the cast. It really is, it's, it, there's content, there's content that fits a niche or a genre, but then there's also star power. And if you're trying to get A-list actors, they're always gonna cost you a lot of money. So, you know, some independent filmmakers do very well. They'll make three or $4 million films. They'll put $2 million into two actors and then everything else is, you know, the rest of the film. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, if you're doing, you know, the walk and talk dramas, I, I, you know, unless you're, you're knocking it out of the park with star power, why do these films need to be made for more than $300,000? I just, I don't know why they would need to be if you're not, if you are not justifying it with the star power. Again, spend 10 million if you're getting George Clooney and Meg Ryan or whoever's hot today, you know, it changes every other day. That's justifiable. Globally, that's going to do a lot for your revenue. But if you're working with actors that are really good at their craft, that, that are blue collar actors that are gonna get the job done, 
but they're not marquee. Um, you know, you really got to think about how you can keep the costs down because, again, the less you spend, the less you're going to make, especially when it comes to talent. But again, you have to navigate what it is you're selling. If you're selling action, you know, what are the star power that you need to pull? The action film, where is it going to do good globally besides here in North America? Horror, does that translate worldwide? Does, you know, psychological thrillers do well? You know, every film genre has its goods and bads all over the globe, and you really need to research that before you find your sweet spot. And we find our sweet spot just by trial and error. I mean, you know, we haven't, we haven't hit home runs every time we make a movie. You know, base hits and doubles are wonderful, but you really, you really need to understand the playing field before you find your sweet spot. You know, and I think it's different for every, every genre and it's different for every filmmaker too. If a filmmaker is going to raise money, then we should just probably pick some ballpark figure, so maybe 500,000, okay. How can a filmmaker mitigate risk? I think when, when putting together, you know, a half a million dollar budget, the best way to mitigate risk on that is to think about genre, think about star power, um, you know, as I, as I try to tell a lot of producers, you know, if, you, if you're only thinking about what the public perception is of your work and the stars that you are working with as your end game, you're, not, you're never going to be happy. You know, be smart in your casting. You know, just because somebody is not A-list studio powerhouse player today doesn't mean they weren't five, ten years ago. Doesn't mean somebody isn't on three television series that are syndicating around the globe you know, two or three times a day in 140 different countries. Those actors are gold and they're not expensive. So, you know, when, when, we, when we cast our films, it's about familiar faces. It's about people with good reputation, people that we enjoy being with 18 hours a day anyway, right? But I think for mitigating risk, it's about, it's about getting actors that people recognize and people can say, oh, I remember this actor from that series or this series or that show or that film. And, you know, it's, when you're working in a half a million dollars, it's, it's really not a lot of money. It goes fast. And, you know, to be able to put, you know, maybe 35%, 40% of that above the line, I think is, is smart. And then, you know, you, you got your, your crew and all below the line, you know, make sure that's an efficient team that makes your product look and sound good, get good editors, do whatever you have to do to make the product look as good as it can. I mean, you can make that that money go a long way if you know how to do it. But again, it comes down to content. A $500,000 drama without the right cast is not the same thing as a $300,000 action film with just one or two right people in it. I mean, they're, they can be completely different success. So I always think, you know, it goes back to really understanding globally what your product, how, how products of that budget and that level and similar cast do. It's really important to look at like films. I mean, us as filmmakers, again, it goes back to thinking everything we do is so special. We're gonna knock the world on its ass because this is just the best script ever and it's gonna be the best movie ever. I always say, you know, always go in under promise over deliver. You know, and I think that's the biggest problem with, you know, a lot of the pitch decks that we look at that come through. Everybody's got names and faces on these things they're never gonna acquire. And they comp it to films they're not even ever gonna come close to comping with. They always pick the big grand slam films. And, and what I try to teach producers is that when you go in with all these promises and hype, you're gonna start casting your film and you're gonna have two strikes against you when your, your investor says, well, who's in it? And you didn't get the names of the faces that were in your pitch deck. 
And, you know, I think that a lot of people go in such high expectations and they get reality checks. Sure, you're going to get the occasional like, wow, I can't believe we got this person or that person. But, you know, when, when you're pitching to investors, I always say, let's just remember, the investors are smarter than we are. We're going to them for money because they are successful at doing things. And, and it's very similar to real estate. If somebody came to you and said, I want you to put 500 grand into this housing project, and within 16 months, you're going to make $20 million, you probably wouldn't invest, especially if it wasn't an accredited builder or developer or somebody that you know and see the track record that, okay, their half million dollars turns into 20 million within a year and a half. And a lot of filmmakers go in with that kind of pomp and circumstance. What I like to do when I pitch investors is I, I use films that most people haven't heard of as comps, where I say, hey, this film was made for 500 grand, it made back 3 million. This film was made for 600 grand, it made back 7 million. Because I'm not going to compare it to Blair Witch, I'm not going to compare it to Napoleon Dynamite. Those are, sh th 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 that stuff's all lightning in a bottle. And, and good on them. There's nothing, no ding against them. It's just, that's the reality. And investors sniff that BS a mile away. I think the most important thing when you're pitching people for money is, is you go in, you make the film as low as you can because the first thing an investor always wants to know is how much money are you getting paid? You know, we talked about that in some of our earlier interviews. I think, how much do you pay yourself or what should, an, what should you be paid? And, you know, the old saying is the, the producer is always the first one to buy lunch and the last to get paid, right? I think investors like to see you're not lining your pockets. Um, they want to know you have certain skin in the game. And when you go to them and you say, look, your $500,000 investment, if we place it here, here, and here with this star power, could generate two to $5 million over the next three to five years, all of a sudden they don't feel they're getting a snow job. And that's, that's the reality of our business. And that's if you're doing well. So I think what's really important is, is it's, you know, you ask about finding the sweet spot on budget. I think it's about, I think you always have to put your investor first because a lot of people just want to get one movie made and they figure they're going to move on to the next. And where we've been very successful is having a track record with, with investors. You know, we don't do one-off investors. We work with the same people over and over again. And that comes from trust. It comes from delivering. It comes from putting a product on a screen that they can be proud of when it's done. And, and having success globally, and it takes time. It, nothing happens like that, you know? And, and that's, I think the problem is, is all these pitch decks that come in are just lined with BS and fluff and, and hype. And I think if people just take a step back and kind of do a reality check on what they're presenting, I think they'd be a lot more successful in getting funds. It's, it's just about honesty and integrity. And you said also not just the images in, in, in the pitch decks, but also shooting something, oh, like a scene. That goes so much further than, I, I, I look at some of these POCs that people shoot and they just look, they look so good. I, I've never been impressed with the pitch deck. And, and it's, it's just littered, it's littered with bullshit. I, I just got sent a 60 page pitch deck that I, I'm consulting a producer on next week. He sent it to me. I shot holes in 95% of it and they spent a lot of money getting this pitch deck made. It is useless. And it's really unfortunate because I see it all the time. And it's, it's not that I have all the answers. I've raised a lot of money from private equity. That's what I do. I know when they know they're getting BS'd and I know what not to do. And these pitch decks are just constantly just, just filled with so much information. It's paperweight that they don't need. You know, less, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of less is more in the room. Uh, I talk about it in the book. Uh, the first time I ever raised private equity, I went into a very successful businessman's office Got, took three months to get the meeting. I brought in a briefcase filled with scripts, budgets. You know, we didn't have the term pitch deck back then, but headshots and you know, what we're gonna do and all the projections and the ask and takes from the distributors and all the people that wanted to sign on. 
and I literally, I literally broke out this this Kinkos box. If you guys remember what that is, Kinkos, you know, I think it's FedEx printers now. I broke out a box, and a guy said, "Stop! What are you giving me?" I said, "Oh, I have a script. I have a budget." He said, "Look around my office," and corner to corner of his grand office, there was stacks of paper, knee to hip high, all over the place. There's just paper, and he said, "These are all proposals from people that want money from me." He said. You want to end up in the pile, give me your paperwork. Why don't we just sit here and have a conversation? You tell me what it is you want to do, how much money you need, how long is it going to take for me to start seeing a return, where, what are you going to do with it? And we were able to have a conversation, bang, bang, bang. And that's, that's how our, fun, our funding comes. It's not with pitch decks, it's not with reels, it's not with anything other than just eye contact and honesty and integrity. Most of our outlines when we, when we meet with investors is three to five pages tops. They were really small, and it's just it's just facts. Here you go. So then, where where is the idea of, of these elaborate pitch decks come from? Oh, I think it's brilliant. I think somebody came up with the idea that they can make a lot of money getting them from filmmakers <laughs> to build a pitch deck. I don't know, and and I'm sure they work. I know there are platforms that do seminars on pitch decks, and I'm sure they work for people. I'm not saying they don't work for everybody. I just know that I see my share of them because a lot of people send them in and say, hey, will you give me your thoughts on this pitch deck? And they are just loaded with bullshit. And, and I, I really believe less is more. It's, you know, two plus two's got to equal four in an investor's mind. A lot of people that you go to for money have been pitched everything, you know, and they, they pay business managers and accountants a lot of money to protect them. And they're all told the same thing. Don't invest in the music industry, the film industry, nightclubs or restaurants, right? That's like the first thing when you get money, you're told what not to do. So you already go in with a strike against you when you meet with an investor. And they've seen it all, they've heard it all, and they know that they have the ability to make your dreams come true by just saying the three-letter word yes. And I think speaking too much in the room is wrong. I think um, you know even a fool is considered wise when they're quiet. Wait for questions to be asked, stay on point. Um, don't overanalyze everything. I've seen more deals get killed in a room because a, a potential investor will ask a question and there's a 30 minute answer. I know I'm long-winded, that's my nature, but in the room, it's a whole different ball game. Yes, no, and if they ask for something, you tell them how it's gonna be and you shut your mouth. And you know, people ruin their own deals time and time again with too much information. And you know, as I talk about in the book, don't be afraid to say I don't know. One of the greatest, most fruitful relationships I ever had with a with an investor came from saying, I don't know. He asked me a question, I didn't know the answer, and I said, sir, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. And what that did, it has allowed me an excuse to contact them again in a day or two with the answer to the question they wanted to know. And I called them back, I got them through their secretary, he got on the phone, he said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, look, really enjoyed our time together a couple days ago, you asked me a question, I didn't have the answer. And he said, I did? I said, yeah. I told him, this was your question, this is the answer. He said, I gotta tell you something. After you left, my attorney and I, we enjoyed our meeting with you. We made fun of you in some respect, but at your expense, you know, that happens. We make fun of everybody who comes in and tap dances for money. He said, but we, we were really moved by the fact that you said you didn't know the answer to something because it showed us that you were willing to say you don't know, you were willing to be honest enough not to BS your way out of it, and you took the time to find out. He said, well, listen, I appreciate the information I'm gonna let you know right now, I'm just gonna say yes to your proposal. Let's move forward and do it. That, that wound up being like a, a financial relationship that went on for, for I don't know how many films and how many years. And that's, that was birthed out of just saying I don't know. So, you know, when it comes to trying to raise private equity, 
Um, it's important to remember these people are smarter than you and they've heard it all. And, and I, they, they can usually smell right through the BS. You know, they cut to the chase with them. They know why you're there. But when they said they made fun of you, did they tell you what some of the things were? Like, oh, were they... eventually they did. You know, well, you know, you get nervous. You know, when you're you're tap dancing for for your next meal, you know, you sometimes you tremble, sometimes you say things wrong. I think I spilled water on their coffee table. Now they think, but they give me a glass of water, and I think I was reaching for something, and I I spilled, and it was you know I was nervous. It's like my first. It was my first attempt at getting capital. I see. I was, I was scared shitless. Seems forgivable, but yeah, okay. Yeah, but it was funny to them. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. Let's see the, the indie guy squirm. Yeah. Oh, my God. And you know what's <laughs> funny is, you know what happens? I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. You know, we talk about money. I, I've had investors call back when, you know, they don't always say yes. And they say, you know, wh why do you need so much money? You know, people are making movies on a dime now. It, seems, it doesn't seem like you're blowing stuff up. You're not, you know, hanging off the Empire State Building. Why do you need so much money? Investors are getting more and more savvy about what things really cost. Um, they become very wise to it. There's just so much information at their fingertips now. The people that they surround themselves with, they, they are paid to investigate and know what things really cost. You know, the days of going into people and asking for millions of dollars are getting further and further. I mean, there are those rare exceptions, but I think you also have to be really savvy on, on an investor's ability. You know, Keep in mind what, you know, just because somebody's rich doesn't mean they can just roll over and write you millions of dollars in checks. You know, you don't know what their overhead is, their, their exposure is, what other responsibilities they have, what tax needs they have or have to avoid. So, you know, I think it's it's really important to, if somebody is, is introducing you to somebody that is a potential investor, you need to do your research. If somebody is saying, I want to I introduce you to somebody, they, they could be a potential investor, take the time to say, what do they do? What is their family size? What are the, you know, they got houses all over the world or they, they live a modest lifestyle or they flashy. Find out, research them. You know, Google's a wonderful thing. Find out some of the things that have happened in their life, their successes and their failures. Make sure they haven't had family tragedies that is your project may remind them of. And I'm a firm believer of whenever you go into the room to pitch somebody, whether it's an independent financier or it's a studio, always have two or three projects under your belt or under your, your arm because you may say something and start down the road of a project and they can say, yeah, no, 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 we're not interested. We don't want to make a film like that. Or we're not interested. We, we developed something like that. It didn't work. You know, you, you wait two or three months to get a meeting with somebody and they tell you in the first two sentences of your pitch, this isn't going to work for them. That meeting's either over or you can say, okay, respectfully, understood, put it away, pull out another project. So if they're accountants, let's suppose these are not quote unquote film people. Yeah, these they are, usually are. Okay, so, so they're people <laughs> that have made money in other um, industries and their accountants or business managers to tell them stay away from the following things which include making a film. Why do you think they would even say yes? Um, well, I think there are people that haven't been told that or if they have, um, they're still open to it. You know. I I will be I, I would say that most of the people that I have been fortunate enough to do business with have said to me early in a relationship, don't ever ask me to fund a film. I would never do that. And you know, you look at it and you say, well, okay, but people who are doing films are doing very well if they're if they're done properly and the model is done and the budget's safe and the output justifies the investment. And there's also so many incentives to investors that they're not even aware of, whether it's the write-offs that they can get. And again, I always say, talk to your accountant. Every situation's different. Everybody's tax situation's different. Every state has different laws. And you know, there's different things that need to be considered. But 
there have been bills put into place, you know, like the Jobs Act that'll bless an investor for investing in a film. There are also investors that have companies that if you can justifiably involve that company that they own in the advertisement aspect that they can actually get that film's investment written off as an advertisement expense and it can do that, you know, long-term depreciation. I've even had investors say to me, you know, don't don't pay us any money back right now. We're taking a hit on this for a while for the company. You got to slow the roll on some of these returns. I mean, that does happen. Everybody's situation is different. But um, there's the reality of, you know, when people make big money and, and a lot of things are, are accessible on what people make or how successful they are. I always say cut those numbers in half. They're all, you know, fabricated or they're pre-tax dollars. And people have, you know, people at that level are pretty responsible usually, especially if they've been around a long time and they, they come from older money that they didn't just make it yesterday uh, by picking magic six numbers. Um, you know, you really have to go in and just because somebody's worth a hundred million dollars, it doesn't mean you ask for 10 or it doesn't mean you ask for one, you know? Why don't you start small and gain their trust, have a base hit or a double, and then they can go back and say, what else do you want to do? And so we'll have this other project we'd like to do. The budget's a little higher than last time, and if you've had success, you're not gonna have an issue with it. Um, I've learned some, from some people that are very close to me that have had a lot of success that they're successful because of what they say yes and no to. You know, smart people in development or in real estate, They'll make they'll make a move on a piece of property, and they look at it and say, "Can I make three X on this in twenty four to thirty two months?" And if the answer is no, they don't buy the property. So as a filmmaker, you can't guarantee that. So what is your pitch going to be? What is your angle going to be? And that's how a lot of savvy investors think. And then it goes back to the BS and the fluff on a pitch deck, trying to appeal to that mindset. And you, you know, nine times out of nine, you're not going to fulfill those promises. So you have to be very careful in your presentation. You know, some of our investors said, "Look." I know you don't want to hear this. You come off a $30 million studio film. You you can do something with a hundred grand. Show me what you can do with a hundred grand. That makes sense. We'll move on. We'll get bigger and bigger. Sometimes you got to come back to them and say, look, with that hundred grand, you're not going to have the success you're going to hope to see because with that money you're offering, we can't get the star that's going to move this over the hump. So can you come up to 150? Give me another 50 grand so I can get this actor or that actor, and I'll show you what I can do for the hundred plus the talent side. And then we can have a conversation. And, and often they'll say, oh, okay, I understand how that works now. And they'll start working with you on that. You gotta be open and fluid and those doors should never be closed. I've had everybody who's ever invested in me has told me no. Everybody, I, nobody has rolled over and said, absolutely, let's do it. It's, it's always come from people who have said no. Right, the, as the first answer? Absolutely, even the, even the gentleman who financed my first film wasn't the first time I've come to him for money. Yeah, it took five years to get them to, to do it. So it, 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 yeah, it's always been no's. Everybody I've, everybody I've been blessed enough to be backed by has started with, with seasons of no's. Or just don't, don't come to me for film, I don't wanna do it. What kind of money are distributors paying for movies today? <laughs> you know, it, it depends. I mean, you could get, you can get a, a good distributor to come in and it's all about territories. How much term, uh, how long is the contract gonna be? Um, you know, making deals with certain platforms or certain distributors looks really good on social media and at cocktail parties, but some of those deals can go 25, 30 years now and they pay, you know, a couple hundred grand, maybe, maybe more, but what are they owning and for how long and what does that limit your other sales potential? Um, 
you know, I'm a big fan of, of trying to sell films territory by territory. There are times where you get opportunities to sell them in a block where somebody will come along and say, we want to own 10, 11 territories and here's what we're willing to pay. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. I think you have to look at both sides of it. You have to look at the long term or how long are they going to have it. You know, sometimes these these awful financial offers come with 30 years on the other side where, you know, I'm 50. I don't I don't need to be 80 to get the rights back. You know, so sometimes the lesser money per territory, if it's shorter term, three to five years, you know, could be more attractive. Every deal is different. You know, you may get every territory spending between 10 and $40,000, but there's, you know, ultimately 50 plus territories to sell around the globe. They take time. Um, a lot of them don't pay up front. Uh, a lot of them don't pay until they have it delivered and it's past QC. So, you know, just because you make a deal, you may not see the money for six months. People forget that. Um, so that's, again, why, you know, when you're an independent filmmaker, I think you have to look at the, the real picture. It doesn't mean you're not going to have something that just surprises the world and you just make a huge deal. That, that does happen, but it doesn't happen to everybody. So, you know, to be a blue-collar filmmaker and to be able to continue to do what you do, you have to, to keep that in mind. Um, I think you have to, you realize that the average deal is going to probably be five to seven years that a territory is going to come in. Um, are they going to pay 50% upon execution of the deal? Are they going to pay 50% upon delivery? That's, that's an attractive way to go where they're going to put up 50% upon signing. And then, you know, when you get to your sales agent, you're going to have a quality, you know, a QC version master that they'll be able to deliver. And all that went through. So you're not doing it territory for territory. Once you have that QC that's passed, that show that's passed muster, everybody's going to get that when they get it. But I, I know two deals are the same. You know, you can have one film where all of a sudden, you know, the UK or Germany's paying 45, 50 grand, and then China is going to pay 10 or 15. And then you can have another film where China's paying. 35, 40, and then, you know, the UK is paying 10 or 15. I mean, it's it's never consistent. It, again, it goes back to genre, big with genre. Also cast, does it fit what they're looking to do? Um, but, you know, again, as, as I talk about in the book, there's, there's 54 territories on the globe, 172 buying countries, right? So you have to realize that some of those territories are going to pay crap. They're going to pay five, seven, 10 grand, but you do have some that are going to pay very well. And you, you, you have to break that down when, again, when you budget a film, I always think with the end in mind. You know, if I make this film and it's this genre and this is the cast I'm realistically going to get, globally, what is that actor or these few actors do in a film of this nature or of this genre? And, and really break it down. Don't look at ask and take sheets that every sales agent's gonna give you that tells you they're gonna ask for 150 grand in Germany and accept 75 grand. That's never gonna happen. That's Those are just numbers that, they just provide these ask and take sheets. They're the same ones. It doesn't matter whose name's on them. They all look alike. Don't go by that. And sales agents will provide that for you to get your business. It's called an ask take sheet. And it's, um, you know, it's very rare those numbers even come close. Define a walk and talk. A walk and talk drama? I, you know, I, I don't even know if it's a real term. I've, I've heard it used by sales agents and distributors talking about, you know, films that, you know, you can look at something like, Harry Met Sally could be considered like, you know, a walk and talk romantic comedy. It's it's not an action film. It's not set in outer space or with green screens. It's it's practical. Um, I think like You've Got Mail is a great example of a walk and talk. You know, it's it still has the romantic comedy elements. Um, when we did Mistrust with Jane Seymour, that was that was what it was, you know, it's a walk and talk drama. Okay. That's the first time I'd ever heard the term and I started hearing it more and more. I think I think terms 
come and go, you know, but that's, that's my understanding of what it is. I'm probably wrong. I'm sure your viewers will tell me how wrong I am, but that's, that's what I understand it to be. <laughs> and are those the hardest to sell? They can be tough depending on the cast. So if, if you're not selling action, you're not selling suspense, you know, something that's getting the heart going and it's, it's a drama, you know, I, you really need to push the cast, um, you know, because you're asking people to, you know, you think about, you think about the independent films that have done well and who's cast in them and what they are. And, um, you know, whenever, whenever we're teeing up to do a drama and we don't really do those much anymore, but when you tee up for them, it's about cast. It's really just about cast. You know, that's important. When you do an action film, it's more about, okay, we've got an action film coming. Let's think about some of these actors who are going to do well globally in different territories and why, you know, and action sells, suspense, you know, thrillers, those things do well. You know, everybody, they, they translate into every language. And something else to keep in mind, yeah. sorry, I'll... No, no, go ahead. You know, they translate, in, 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 they translate in different languages, but there's something to also think about is when, when you do drama, you know, it's something I, I, I talk to people a lot about, especially now coming out of where we've been for the last year and a half, do we, do we really want to deal with too much drama anymore? I mean, I don't know. And, and the question is, is does the world want what we consider drama? Do they want our drama? Do they want our problems? You know, drama comes with a lot of emotion. It comes with a lot of feelings. It comes with a lot of baggage. Doesn't always, it doesn't mean it's bad. It's, you know, it's what makes some of the great dramas. But I always, I always try to, to, to remind people, think about what we're coming out of. People have been living in their, you know, their homes or their, their dwellings for a year and change and they haven't been able to socialize much. They haven't gone on vacation. Take them places they want to go. Let them experience exciting things. You know, that never gets old. People want to see beautiful things and, and get excited. And, and I, th I think you can incorporate that in drama. But don't forget, you know, Always think about where the world is right now and what if, if you were totally detached from this film, completely detach yourself from it, think about the year you've just had. Do you want to sit and watch somebody else go through some drama right now? Totally for the drama genre, I love it, but I just think you have to be sensitive to the global climate when you're making certain product. But the Queen's Gambit worked. That God, was, did that work. That, that was that drama. That was just awesome. Would you say that was some action or no? Not, not really. But it, but it had sensuality. It had, it had some eroticism to it. It, it had mystique. It had edgier seat moments because of some of the, the things that she went through, you know, with her addictions and dealing with her family drama and, and her background. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, I saw it over not a long time ago now. But I think she was a, was she adopted or something? She was in an orphanage. Orphanage, yeah, adopted, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of baggage there, but. They were able to educate an audience. And, and you know what I thought the coolest thing was, and nobody was surprised, is when they talked about the number of chess, chess games that sold after the success of that film. And they couldn't keep chess in stock. You know, it became the hottest thing in the world. Everybody was buying chess. And I, I was, so obviously they did something besides being just such a brilliant execution of such a great show, is it, it got people excited about a new hobby. And, and that's a cool thing too, you know? And we could root for the underdog, even though yeah. she was kind of three steps ahead of most of the people there. Oh, she was, but so, she was the underdog. But in watching the chess games and, and the looks on the little the little tells and the micro expressions and things, and, and wondering, was this going to be the one that was going to take her down? Yeah, you know, yeah, that's and, right. And all of the, um, you see pomp and circumstance that was around certain of the, the notorious players, and then sure. here's this, she's going to come in, you know, so... It was great. I liked I liked the janitor that taught her how to play. 
Benny, was it? He needs a spinoff. He sure does, yeah. Yeah, he really did. Yeah, I wasn't sure where we were going with him at first. I wasn't either. I was like, ah, it's a little creepy. And then I realized, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, yep. He's a good guy. I know exactly what you mean. But <laughs> yeah, it, it had that intrigue. But no, I think there's nothing wrong with drama. But I think during the drama, you have to have those those moments to breathe and, and experience new things. You know, as a filmmaker, we've talked about it before. Filmmaker's job is to bring an audience to someplace they've never been, never knew existed, is always afraid to have gone to or always you know, wanted to go. And I think in drama, you can still do that, even with some of the experiences or adventure that maybe a, a romance, a, let's say it's a, a romantic, it's not a comedy, but it's a romantic drama. You know, There's drama and you know, maybe somebody's a widow or somebody is cheating on a spouse and they're going through this journey of a new relationship. And that's, that's one thing Zalman King did very well. If you watch like nine and a half weeks, what made that in its time was, was what that relationship did between the incredible sex scenes is the thrill and the exuberation of that relationship and where it took its viewers and its time. And I think that's important to do. Sure. And there was romance in The Queen's Gambit. There was. There was. That's yeah. right. That's right. There was, yeah. you know. But there was also excitement and the mm -hmm. way, uh, and then I'll just close it there, but just the, the a lot of the shots were, I'm not sure what the exact terminology is, but there are like these upshots of, of them following her upstairs and getting like this wide view of her sort of walking into a room. And, and but, but also, and you're right, and what was really cool about it is they took us places we've never been. And her journey when she became a professional chess player, the places around the world she went, and some of these incredible rooms and these halls and these hotels and... We got to experience that, especially during COVID when we were all stuck at home is when most of us saw that, you know, and, and even Schitt's Creek, you talk about a show that exploded during the pandemic. I mean, everybody was talking about that show early on in the pandemic. And, and you know, here was just this great concept of this, this very wealthy family that had everything stripped from them that had to go to this small town. But what, what fun, and that's circumstantial comedy. That I think translates a lot better than slapstick comedy because People can get that from all walks of life. Every language, that'll translate, you know. So I, I think you just have to be smart in picking your content. Just, you have to, again, we talk about how us artists are so myopic and selfish. You just have to take a step back and say, okay, if you were detached from this, realistically, how do you think this would be accepted? Take your passion, take your investment of your time or your, your, your talent away from this for just five minutes. And really think about how this would do on a global scale and why. How much money can filmmakers expect to make from streaming services today? Don't expect anything. I, I think every deal is different. Every situation is different. Um, there, are, there are some really cool streaming services or platforms that are popping up all the time that, you know, Tubi's a new one. Um, obviously, you've got your Netflix, your Amazon, your Hulu. You know, um, I, think, I think Netflix, you know, if you make a deal with them, they acquire the project. I think, I think people will be surprised for what they actually acquire independent films for. And people need to realize they pay that over, I think, two years. It's not just one big check. Um, and, and that's fine. That's, that's what they do. Um, you know, there are some, some AOD platforms that are, that are doing surprisingly well. I, I never say what anybody should expect. Um, I, I work with sales agents and distributors all the time that are working with films that have been dead, cataloged, collect dust in a closet, haven't seen the light of day in 15, 20 years. They're throwing them on some of these AOD platforms and they're bringing in five to 20 grand a month just on like dead titles. It, and then you have stuff that costs a lot more that are recent and slick and they're not making a dime. There's, I don't think there's, there's really a, a guarantee for anything. Um, I, you know, I think that 
Um, there are some really good streaming platforms out there. There's some, you know, obviously the the more the merrier. If you can get different territories, different platforms, you know, they have some platforms now that'll get your your work out on, you know, you can make deals with some distributors. They'll get your get your work out on 32 different platforms. You know, every major cable outlet, including Xbox and PlayStation. I mean, those are some really attractive things. But how well do they pay? Um, you know. I don't want to give you a number and say this is what you can expect because it, what you know, we always have to remember about this business is to hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and expect the unexpected. And it goes back to learning something new every day. You know, um, there are some streaming platforms that I've heard are just, oh my God, you got to get with them, and you see what the deal is, and you just say that's the last thing I want to do. And then there are some platforms that you've never heard of that you just say, I, I wouldn't be caught dead being affiliated with this. And then they say, well, sit down. Here's what our MG is. We're going to give you a minimum guarantee for one year. And then after the second year, you have first right of refusal. If you're happy with that, we're going to pay you you know, 40% afterward. You sit there and you go, so wait, you're going to give an MG on a streaming deal for that much money? Huh. Okay. And these things, I mean, I get hit with these things every other day where there's the misconception of some of the bigger ones. And then there's this, I've never heard of you before, but you're willing to guarantee it. I wish I had the answer for you, but I, I think it's one of those things that every film, every film with a cast from every filmmaker is gonna be treated differently in that. I just do, I just do. I don't think there is a tried and true number yet. There's too many new platforms popping up. They're everywhere. From our previous interview, Shane, we had one video that had a lot of comments that we were hoping to run by you and maybe get some clarification on. Uh, the big reason why many people will never have a career in the film industry. And so here's one comment. Sounds great in theory, but we literally can't afford to spend our time not getting paid these days, honestly. LOL. I could read another if you'd like. Please. Okay. Okay. You can hustle, be the quote Johnny on the spot, and still fall through the cracks. Starting out, I worked on a ton of projects for free, as much as I could, living at home, and later when I saved up and moved to LA. But eventually those resources run out and you have to pay rent. There's a definite class element to being able to go out and spend two years working for free. Nobody should work for free. Mm -hmm. Here's another one. Quick question. If you work on a movie 12 plus hours a day for a month and you do that for a year or so for free, dot, 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 how exactly do you pay rent? Question mark. Okay, here's another one. I've been working my tail on. I would probably tail off. That's what I was thinking. Been Sorry, working yeah. their tail off. They've been working their tail. Yeah, <laughs> wax on, wax off. Sorry. Okay. Um, I've been working my tail off on crappy jobs outside the movie industry, and I cannot accept unpaid jobs inside the industry because I have to eat and live, and that costs money. I am a little confused about this attitude of Stanley. Thanks that you are supporting such a bad role model. I'm a bad role model. Okay. God, um, I, I feel bad that so much of this was misconstrued, and I don't blame the the, the viewers. And and I'd first like to apologize if anything was misunderstood. I I'm not telling you to sell your soul, work for free, live on the streets, and not pay rent. Um, let me clarify a few things with that. Um, because I encourage you to get out there and work and hustle and do what you have to do to get on a set. A lot of the sets that you're going to get on cannot afford you anyway, and they or they are already filled. And what my point was, it doesn't mean you go work 75 hours a week for free six days a week on a film. 
It means you make yourself available to a producer or a filmmaker and say, look, I have a job. I need to get time on a set. Can I put in two days a week? I'm, I'm off Saturday and Tuesdays. I'm off the weekend. I'm off at night. And get yourself involved and in the loop of people that are doing what you ultimately want to do. I'm not saying that you've got to go, you know, live in your car to go work for free. I personally worked for free a lot, but I also had other jobs. Just because I had a father in the industry, trust me, it didn't help me in a way that a lot of people think it might hit. When I when I decided that I wanted to make a living in film, the only thing my father gave me was his Rolodex. He said, "Great." There you go, you know some of the people in there, make some calls. I worked for hundreds of different people before he hired me full time. I wasn't until my mid-20s until I was working with my dad full time. We had a lot of success early on with his documentaries and shows that he did. We did one every two years. I moved out when I was 18. I didn't have my rent covered. I was out hustling, I held odd jobs, I sold cars, I worked at restaurants, I waited tables, I bus tables. You know, I detailed cars, I mowed lawns, I painted houses, I did construction. I still found a way to get on a set every week and put in my time to make new contacts. So what I'm trying to encourage you guys to understand is it's not going to come to you. You have to make sacrifices. I am not asking you to whore yourself out and work for free for everybody all the time to start to get a track record as a reliable resource on a set. It's like interning. You know, we have a lot of interns that come and go on our shows from films, uh, from film school that work on our productions. We, we get them when we can. They get credit. Some of our greatest regular crew members that we pay are from interns from college that came in and worked for two or three days a week, if we were lucky, during a production from four years ago. It's just to encourage everybody to understand it's not coming to you. If it's not coming to you, how are you gonna get something? You know, if you wanna to get to an island, it ain't coming to you, you either swim or take a boat. If you don't have money for a boat, you don't have the resources for a boat, get in the water, start swimming. That's all I'm trying to say. It's to encourage you guys to understand that's what I had to do. I brought up a friend of mine whose father had two Oscars, his mother had I think five or seven Emmys. When he pulled his head out of his ass and decided he wanted to work in the film industry, he told his parents his plan, assuming they would get him work. They said, great, dad picked up the phone and I think he called Deluxe, which was an old film color house back in the day. My friend was sweeping floors there for two years before they let him sit behind an edit bay. That was the job he got. The first year he was there, he was there two or three hours a day and he wasn't paid. That's just how it was back in our day. If I offend people of today's generation because we actually worked for free and earned our stripes by busting ass and bringing our own lunch, sorry you were offended. But that's how we did it. We still have people that want to intern, that show up. We still have great people that come in and say, look, I'd like to give you a day on the set. I want to show you what I'm about. Because we're not looking for the help. We have the people that are on the team. So it's about people coming to us and saying, I want to show you what I can do for you. Of course, we're going to feed you. We'll water you. Come on out for a few hours. Show us what you got. So when we make our next film, we know to call you. And there's a lot of filmmakers that are willing to do that. I used to call everybody I knew in that Rolodex and I called them and, and we didn't have text and email, it was phone calls. And it was, you know, hey Phil Hearn, it's Shane Stanley, Lee's son. Yeah, that one. Um, listen, I need to get on a set. Do you need somebody to be a, a PA, an AC, a, a second? You know, what can I do to get on a set? 
Phil would call back sometimes and say, yeah, if you want to come work on Saturday, we're doing a show with Richard Crenna. Come on out, bring your own lunch. I'll, I'll get you on the set. You ain't getting paid. And I'd show up. You know, I did that with Steve Elkins, Phil Hearn, did that with uh, Ken Schaefer. I did that with, with Tom Coaster. I did that with, with you know, Chaz Shootcat, I think, got me on a couple of shows. It's it just what we did. And I, I hope, and I understand times have changed and all that, but my, my heart and my spirit of telling you what I did last time that ruffled some feathers was not sell your soul and work for free for 70 hours a week. Do your, meet your responsibilities with your paying job, but we all don't work 70 hours a week for a paying job. So you find the time to get on a set, even if it's three hours a day, and show people what you got and be around people that are doing what you love so they know that they can call and rely on you. That was the sole purpose of that. Why do you think um, younger generations have reacted stronger than maybe you know previous ones? Is it because a lot of interns have been taken advantage of? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you work with interns, you can't you can't replace interns. You can't replace employees with interns. And I think you know, ever since the big black swan lawsuit, that changed the dynamics. You know, we work very closely with a lot of amazing schools. You know, the LACC, LA, VC. Uh, we're working with College of the Desert this year out in Palm Springs and uh, Pierce College. And you know, the rules are simple: is is you know, give the kids the opportunity, let them shadow, and and our our guys on our crew are so amazing with them because they, they've been fortunate in their upbringing and they understand what hard work is. They don't let the kids sit around. They're like, hey, grab an end of that. Come on, let me show you how to clean a lens. I mean, we had interns literally doing second AC duties for, for a film when we had a second AD, or I'm sorry, second AC. And, and to watch these kids learn how to pick up these 60 or $70,000 lenses and clean them and prep them and put them on the cameras, they're not learning that in the classroom, and I guarantee you they're not learning that during a pandemic. So we're really big about interns coming out and learning various jobs on the set. You know, we try to move them to sound, to camera, to AD, UPM. They come shadow me for a day. They can learn everything what not to do. Um, you know, go into hair and makeup, learn how that is. Go learn wardrobe and how we tag everything for the days and the scenes and how sometimes wardrobe's used for half of the day. It's put away. We use it for an hour something else and then we go back to that and just the way the schedule is and how we shoot they don't learn these things in a classroom and um you know they're paying for an education that that they get in a class and so when they're able to come on a set with filmmakers that are willing to open their doors and their hearts to say come learn you know and that's that's what that's that's the spirit of what i what i try to to you know to encourage Shane, we're hoping to get your take on what might be the problem with Hollywood movies today. I, I don't know if there's a, what, what is the problem? I, I think there's a lot of disgruntled, unemployed people bitching about what's being made because they're not working. I mean, and that's, that's part of why I did what I did. I got tired of not working, so went out and created content. I'm not knocking anybody who's not working. Um, I, I, I think the big complaint from everybody is, well, it's all sequel, prequel, and remake, and it's all, you know, spandex, you know, men in capes and spandex and action hero movies, and if that's what they're considering the problem, but there's still plenty of content. Um, I, I had learned from a studio head about nine years ago when, when these superhero movies were really becoming a thing, and, and they told me, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get unbelievable. With, with different studios buying, you know, act, acquiring different branches of different comic book companies, whether it's DC or Marvel or, 
different, you know, one-offs in, in, in like remaking movies that we've all heard of. And, and I asked, why do, you, why do you do it? He said, well, there's a big audience for it, and I get that. But they said that the branding's already there. You know, when, when a studio makes a movie, people forget that there is a tremendous amount of P&A that goes into it, you know, prints and advertising and pushing this thing. And when you have a project, I mean, you can take something like Jungle Cruise. I mean, you've got, you know, two of the biggest stars in the world in it. Everybody knows what it is, Disney's Jungle Cruise. You know, I mean, what, 140,000 people go to Disneyland every day when there's no pandemic. So everybody should know that. That's built-in branding. You know, it's it's about, for studios, it's, it's you talk about mitigating the risk. You talk about lessening the chances of putting all this money into television commercials and billboards that are going to get covered by another film next week and pushed aside. And people people already have a knowledge of, you know, what it is because we've seen it as, you know, Fantasy Island, Adam's new TV show that's been remade and is now on Fox. We all know what Fantasy Island is. It's built-in branding. You know, they did it with Dynasty. They did it with Dallas. You know, they reboot everything now. It, I don't think it's as much about there aren't any new ideas. I think it goes back to fear. I, I honestly think it goes back to fear with decision makers wanting to make shows that were proven successful at one time or had built-in branding that people are going to want to watch for curiosity factor. They're going to want to watch because they loved it at one time. I'll tell you a show that would blow it out right now that would do really well if they would just remake Heart to Heart. Can you imagine that yeah. show today? That That's a modern-day Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Yeah. You know, that show would be a great remake. Mm-hmm. Um I, I, it's just one of those things though. I mean, I, I think the, the remakes have become a bit much for me. Art's nothing but opinion. There is a hungry audience out there for content. Um, I, I don't want to say anything's wrong with Hollywood, but I think a lot of, of disgruntled people in town that have fresh ideas that they believe their scripts are really different and good, and they probably are, are upset when they see airspace and screens filled with remakes that were done 20, 30 years ago. That's where the frustration comes from. And again, I'm not knocking people that are not working. I mean, again, I I got tired of watching sequels, prequels, and remakes get made and finally just said, screw it, I'm just gonna find a way to make my own stuff because nobody else wants to. Maybe my stuff is that bad, but that's, that's why I try to push people to really find ways to partner with people that can get their stuff done. God forbid somebody loves your little indie project and says you should be directing the next Superman. I mean, it could happen, you know? And uh, I, 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 I'm disappointed in Hollywood. I, I think there's a safety factor, a lazy factor that's come in. I'm not gonna lie. I don't disagree with what you're saying and what people are saying. But, you know, the opportunity to, to, to get a studio or a platform such as a Netflix to commit if you have an original series idea, it's going to cost them between 50 and $150 million for 10 hours of content. That's a big risk on something that hasn't been proven when everybody's afraid to make a chance. And, you know, when you're putting up $200 million to put it on 4,000 screens, you're going to tend to go for the tried and true. And I think that's really what they've done. And it's really hurt the new writer. It's really hurt the person that has honed their craft and has written some great specs that are just not getting looked at because there isn't a home for it. So my, my advice is don't be angry. It, it hurts me when I see writers who are not working blasting the things that are getting made. It seems the writers do that more than anything. And, and I understand the frustration. I'm not saying you're wrong to feel that way, but I don't think you're doing anything good for yourself 
by, by blasting what's getting made. Go make something better or just go make something and show the world what you can do. Don't, don't talk about it, be about it. You know, that's, that's the advice I give to people that, that have aspirations. It's, again, I, I keep repeating myself, it's not coming to you. You have to go on out and get it. And whether that's go work on, on a set, you know, a day or two a week for free, um, or it's going out and getting a DSLR and a couple of people from a local acting class and playing out scenes and really doing a POC, a proof of concept on your vision of what your script can be, that's how, that's how it's going to get done for you. You know, that's, that's my advice and that's my feeling on it. I think Hollywood has gotten quite lazy. I think they've gotten complacent. I think they are uh, content with the numbers that they get with their remakes of the same old, same old. I'm not, I'm not endorsing it at all. That's why I go out in the dirt and do what I do. I, I don't personally like that stuff at all. I understand the anger and the frustration. But being angry about it and, and trying to get attention online or trying to pull down other people that are doing stuff that you're not doing doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. Just go show them what you can do. Sure. I would enjoy seeing a remake of Alice or Taxi. Oh, Taxi, I don't know, Striking a Car, that was one of my favorites. I don't I mean, you know. Would people, well, it would be Uber. You just call it Uber. That's true, or, right? or Lyft or... or yeah, yeah, just call mm -hmm. it Lyft right. or Uber. Um, Alice would be great. One of my favorite shows growing up with Linda Lavin and uh, Vic Tabak mm -hmm. and yeah. Yeah, that was a great show. For those of you who don't know what it is, look awesome it up. Show. Great television. Mm -hmm. um, All in the Family could never be made again. We know that. Um, but there were some great shows that they haven't remade, but they they do they do find a way to keep remaking and rebranding stuff, and that's all about built-in branding. Well, Two Broke Girls was similar to Alice in some ways, but it, I realize it was much you know raunchier and, and right, right. You know, pushed some boundaries. It did, yeah. I don't yeah. think it get made today. Oh, you don't think so? I don't know. I didn't watch the show, but I've I've heard that that in some of the discussions that I've had with some of the writers that we do um, on some of the platforms that we interact with, you know, aspiring screenwriters and they want to pitch and they talk about different things. And somebody was talking about Two Broke Girls. I've, I've never seen an episode of it. And somebody had said, do you think that that would get made today? And a lot of people said, no, they pushed some boundaries. So I just, that's one that's kind of like, you know, we obviously know Blazing Saddles is the go-to. That would never get made today. And, you know, you think about the content in that film. Um, Forgive me, Two Girl Girls was like t less than ten years ago, right? I think it was. Yeah, it was so, so we've 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 changed that much where we can't in that short of time. We we it would be too much to push. I don't. I, again, I haven't seen it. I just mm. found it interesting that you know it's funny whether it's an industry conversation or it's just people. The joke is always like, well, you know, Blazing Saddles would never get made today. That's like the go-to for film, and and it was just kind of weird that everybody was kind of on this Two Girl Girls bandwagon. I could be wrong. I've been wrong, you know, hundred times today, but I I just found that odd that people thought so. I thought it was a very successful sitcom that looked enduring and fun, and you know, I'm afraid I'm a fan of Whitney. I just never got into the show, but it just seemed to strike a chord with a few people on these on these different you know webinars we were doing, and they they all seemed kind of like, yeah, do you think that would get made today? Did they push them? Maybe it was racial or sexual boundaries since Me Too since uh, some of the other things we've been through as a society, did true. they push those envelopes? You would know, you've seen it. I have. haven't seen that many episodes, but I know from the few that I did, yes, there was okay. definitely content on there. That I think that's probably what they not meant, for which probably made audiences. the show, which probably made the show good. You know, mm -hmm. we have, we have, we went through a time, I'm probably gonna 
really ruffle some feathers with this one, so let's, let's do it. We went through a time as a society, we got so desensitized. You know, when natural born killers came out, the big fear was, oh my God, have we gotten to that point in society where things are said and done and we don't even blink at it anymore. We don't care, we're okay with that. And then now we've gotten to a point where we really, really are trying not to offend certain people or push boundaries anymore. And I think it's really interesting how 15, when, did, when did natural born killers come out? You know, 25 years ago? Uh-huh. How that really turned it into how desensitized we've become to now how sensitive we are. Think about that. I mean, that's been a radical shift, especially in the last four years. Well, it seems like with cinema and television, but then everyone's okay pulling out cameras if an incident happens in real yeah. life. So it's like, it's okay Great for point. us to do that mm-hmm. and share some horrific things that way and that's acceptable what's real life that's what's happening okay so then we don't want to see it in the cinema even though this is what's being apparently not okay but i always thought art imitated life so okay you know i'm not disagreeing with you i I I just but i see the difference yeah you know i knew the gentleman who put the rodney king beating on the air Hmm. that was a much longer tape than we saw as a public um i think he acquired the tape for three hundred dollars from the gentleman who you know got the camcorder and was filming outside his balcony, right. and um, it was very disturbing. There was nothing good about it. I'm not making light of what we didn't see, but there was a lot that wasn't shared with the public, and that changed everything. Sure, it really when that Rodney King incident hit the airwaves as a society, we we woke up to a whole different animal in our in our you know the underbelly of what was going on, and I I it's. You know, and obviously what we went through, you know, with George Floyd in the last year, you know, and that being caught on camera and, and, and it's just, it's, you know, you're right. I mean, the things that are shown that people are catching on live camera are just, there's no, we don't even think twice about it. It's, it's shocking sometimes. Sure. I don't know if, you know, again, we've become desensitized to a lot of things we see, but do we want it in the art that we go pay to see? And is, is us as storytellers, I, I think there are some filmmakers, and I, and I mean this with the purest of heart, please understand where this is coming from. I think there are some storytellers that have a, a right and should be given the pass to show and exploit certain things in their art. Because I think there is so much that we see on a, on a, on a camera that's caught in 30 seconds, where so often when when the, the right artist tells that story, they get into the buildup. They, they get into the aftermath. You know, we, we are so used to seeing news like that. We'll look at, you know, somebody have a fit in a Walmart because they're not wearing a mask. We'll see somebody get choked out by a police officer. And it just comes at us at the speed of light. And when somebody can take an hour and a half, two hours, and really break down the psyche and the buildup and what happened and then the aftermath. You know, we don't have... When we see something shocking on the news, which is usually what you know, news is now 50% somebody's camera, it feels like, there's never a follow-up. It's very rare. You know, they may say, sure. oh, there was, there was sadly, there was somebody killed in a street race, they found the guy. But we don't get the aftermath. That's a good point. And that's that's what I don't like about the news is 
you know, obviously we did with, with George Floyd and some of the other situations that are similar that we've been dealing with as a society because it's it's warranted that and it's 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 attracted that much attention and rightfully so. But we watch stuff all the time on on social media that we just whip through it and we watch something crazy, it goes on for 20 seconds, we whip through it, see something else. We never know the outcome of that. We don't know what caused it. And I think there are some artists that are sensitive enough, they have a sensitivity in the ability to really tell a story from beginning to end in aftermath, you know, beginning, middle, end, and domine of what happened. And I, I think too many of us storytellers just feel, well, we're storytellers, we can do it. And I, I think I think there's a very, very select few who have the right to do it. Would you say that filmmakers today are more about forcing a message than telling a good story? That's a great question. Um, I think I think there's there's quite a few that do that. Um, I think telling a good story is important, whether it's it's you know a fun, you know, romp in the desert, or it's a, a story about a collapse of, you know, the housing industry, like you know the Big Short. I mean, wow, was that a message or was that a story? Yeah. I, I think it was both. I really do. I, will we learn from it? Time will tell. <laughs> I think set your watch to that, but. Um, you know, I think, you know, as storytellers, we have a responsibility. As writers, we have a responsibility. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think, I think well, if you look at the faith-based genre, it's all about the message. They don't care about the story as much as they do. It's the message. It's the message. It's the message. And, um, you know, uh, that's cool. That's, that's their thing. Um, you know, sometimes the story's good. I'm not saying they're not always, but there's, there's, it's message is the, the integrity and the, the point behind those. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what, what different artists' intent is. I think some people go in with the intent to tell a good story and it becomes message heavy. Um, and I think the other way around too, sometimes people go in wanting to give a message and it, it ends up being a good story or, you know, it doesn't. Um, I think, I think everybody as a storyteller has an intention, whether they're willing to show their hand or really, you know, I think the good storytellers are able to do both without people realizing what's happening. I mean, I think when you can seduce an audience and kind of woo them along and, and really get them in your story, regardless of what story you're telling, whether it's Chariots of Fire, I mean, you talk about that, that was a faith-based movie. People don't realize that, that you know, Eric Little not, not competing on the Lord's Day and the background of his religious background. There was a lot of religious undertones in that, but it was a hell of a story and it was such a brilliant film. And, you know, was it message driven or was it story driven? I think it probably was a good hand of both, in my opinion anyway. You know, look at On Golden Pond, you know, Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda. I mean, there was a story there, but there was such a message about family and, and communication and, and how we drift apart with age and circumstances. But you know, I think there's a way to do both. But your question was, do I think one, one this is, people become more focused on one or the other. I think as we go through what we have in our times, I think, I think a lot of people run to a message as storytellers. I think that's a big thing. I, I see a lot of short films and thesis films that are message driven and they're not thinking about the story as much. But that's, that's coming from a lot of film school students and you know, newbies that they, they wanna jump on a cause. And, and sometimes just, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think, you know, um, 
I think sometimes when you when you're dealing with sensitive issues or you're dealing with subject matters that we're still really feeling, you know, the aftermath or the aftershock from, um, that's a that's a good way to get some attention as a storyteller to to let people see what it is that you're trying to do as an artist. And sometimes you have to you have to to pick the scab a little bit. You mentioned that Taxi was one of your favorite shows growing up. Was there a message with the TV show? Poof. Was Louis De Palma, was he, was, did he have something <laughs> Danny, that he was trying to tell us and we didn't see it? I think he was just a, I think, you know, I always thought Danny DeVito was the youngest of probably five children. And he probably, you know, like Arthur Spooner and the King of Queens never really was heard growing up. And he was a bully. And, you know, the funny thing was, is he was, you know, five foot nothing, hundred and nothing. And, you know, ran the roost. It was his show, you know, I mean, it was his, his the, it was his garage. And there was there was messages, but you know, occasionally he would have a life lesson. But before they faded to black, he'd always slide back to old Louis, right? That's true. But but the things that Judd Hirsch's character would would go through with you know Tony Danza or Elaine or you know Bobby Wheeler's character, I forget his name, the actor that passed. Um, and, and you know, my favorite was Jim Jim McNintowski, Christopher Lloyd's character. I mean, that was my favorite character. I watched the show for him as a kid. I thought he was hilarious. And Lotka. Lodka was great. It's great Lodka, yeah, yeah. And Lodka's wife, yeah. Yeah. I mean, was there a message, you know? I think you talk about people coming from all different backgrounds and all different, you know, walks of life and being able to work together and encourage. Well, Alex was always kind of that wise owl of the group. You know, they went to him for advice or sometimes he got himself in a pickle and, you know, Elaine would help him out, you know? So I, I think it's neat when shows that we endear touch on us without hitting us over the head. And I think Taxi was a brilliant example of, of giving us little life lessons without ever feeling like we were being preached at. You know, I like shows like that. Don't hit me over the head. You know, let me enjoy the people, the circumstances, and go along for the ride. And oh, you happen to give me a little life lesson here. All right, it was, it was, it was extra worth the time. Whereas with Fantasy Island, there was always a message, usually. There was, wasn't there? Once, well, you know, when, when um, Mr. Rourke was, was speaking to Tattoo at the end, there, there was some kind of a message that... That show was on past my bedtime. I never got through the third act. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they'll have the same message in the remake, but it looks like they've really rebranded it. I like the fact that they have a woman now as the Mr. Rourke character, I think. Oh, okay. It appears that way. I haven't seen it yet, but looking at some of the previews of it, I think they have a woman now leading the charge, which I think is great. Um, you know, but yeah, there, there were messages. I know there was about people finding love or I, I think, wasn't it again, forgive me. Uh, I think it was also a, a lot of people fantasies chasing something that they're never going to get and being able to accept and love and appreciate what they truly had as they think what kind of was the underlying tone of the show, wasn't sure. it? Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, so. As an audience member or fan, do you feel that movies today are lecturing you more than they previously did? Not the stuff that I watch. I don't, I don't allow myself to get into that. I, I, I'm very, you know, time is precious. Our time on this earth is limited. You know, um, something doesn't, doesn't get me early. I just, I have an off button like the rest of the world. I just, I just don't go down roads that I, I just feel if something's going in a direction that I don't personally agree with, or it just doesn't hold me. I, I don't wait it out. You know, I'd rather go on and do something else. Um, so I, I can't answer that. Um, I just, you know, 
I, I like shows that allow me to do the things that I want to do when I tell a story. Let people go where they haven't gone. Take them someplace they didn't know existed. I let them just forget about their circumstances and enjoy something for 90 minutes or however long it is that they're watching. Um, but, you know, I, I always love it when there's something, you know, there's always that saying when we work on something, we always, we always try to leave the audience with something, you know, more than an empty box of popcorn at the end of a show. I think it's, I think, I think it's a filmmaker's responsibility. I mean, no matter how ragtag or crazy a show is, I think, I think there's always, I think show always needs heart. You got to have characters you care about and can relate to. So I think it's important that, you know, as storytellers, we allow our audiences to relate to characters or at least want to learn more about a character. And if we have some self-discovery during the ride, super, that's great. Um, I don't look for films like that or projects like that when I watch something. Um, but, you know, I, I like nice surprises. As I said earlier, I think sometimes when you walk away from something, wow, you know, I gave me a different point of view or I never thought of that or really interesting to see a different side from, you know, of society that maybe I don't come in contact with all the time and to see their upbringing, their point of view, or, you know, one of the shows that I'm absolutely in love with is, um, I'm blanking on the name right now, it's um, Snowfall. John Singleton uh, created that show and, you know, basically about the beginning of crack cocaine in the inner cities and how that started. Um, I think that is just such a brilliant show. And I, having come up, working with you know incarcerated youth during that time we were really big in working with you know a lot of the juvenile inmates and in, in the prison system during those 80s and 90s and i was very involved with a lot of the kids lives that were going through you know slinging dope and making crack and selling it and living in gangs and protecting their turf and you know here i am 25 30 years later as, as you know a 50 year old guy watching this show it's like one of my favorite shows on TV. And that's something that I saw close up. It wasn't, you know, living the life, but I was close to it and, and, you know, integrated with people that were. I just think, you know, you talk about a show that, you know, you, you, I think you learn so much about the mindset of, you know, there's a lot of people that it's easy to look down on people that live a certain way and do a certain thing to make money. But you also have to look at the circumstances and what their surroundings are and either you're selling or you're living on the streets broke or you're selling or you're gonna die. Because there's a lot of people that got pulled into it that you, you had to choose an allegiance. So a lot of the people that got involved in that, they didn't really have a choice. And, and a lot of people, you know, it's it's good to remind people where things come from. I mean, I think there's some, some interesting roads they go down with the CIA funding some of that to kind of do their own thing. And that's that's all, you know, if you're into that, that's cool. I mean, I don't take one side or another on that, but I, I love the show because I, I care about the characters. You know, we, we meet Franklin and he's this young kid who lives in the hood who gets brought into this underworld and he becomes a, a kingpin of moving narcotics into the not only the inner city, but our, our world. And, you know, stories like that fascinate me. And I think a lot of people get that from shows like Narcos and, and other shows. I haven't seen that one, but, you know, I sometimes there's message, you know, there's interesting, interesting things that come from those about relationships and loyalty. And, you know, sometimes I can get inspired by a show like that that has nothing to do with what I'm dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, but it reminds me of the importance of loyalty when I think of our film crew or I think about the people that we work with or our friends or our family. Um, you know, so it's nice when those little, those little things happen when you watch a show that you don't expect it from.